Good morning. Uh, I'm Rick Hansen. Uh, it's 10 o'clock, and probably about a quarter of the people coming today are not yet here, which is pretty normal. I think the air quality has added another variable, too. Um, and so I suggest that we just sit quietly for about 10 minutes, letting ourselves settle. Uh, before we do that, I just want to mention, if you don't know what this image is, it, it includes about 200 galaxies. Uh, this is the so-called dark field image that the, space, that the Hubble Space Telescope took uh, 15 or so years ago, maybe more, I think, actually, through essentially a pinhole in the sky. If you imagine a, a, a dime at 200 feet, that's that tiny pinhole that the astronomers sucked light in, as it were, uh, from a billion or more light years away, and they wondered what they'd find, and they found 200 galaxies. So you just imagine generalizing from that tiny pinhole to uh, the universe altogether, current estimates around 2 trillion galaxies. It's a lovely image. It's publicly available. There are others like it. And it seems somehow fitting that what normally sits as the wallpaper of my laptop should be the entry into opening into allness. It really does, uh, you know, when I, get, when I get my knickers in a twist about something, I'll sometimes look at that picture and go, chill out, Rick. You know, like, <laughs> come on, guy. Anyway, so uh, this is the actual, we won't just meditate on that image all day, fear not. Um, we have PowerPoints, so maybe you should really fear, but anyway, that is going to pop up, and we're going to run the slideshow, which is not running, which Jesse will manipulate. Yay, we're good. Okay, and of course, John Muir. So let's sit quietly for five, ten minutes or so, just letting ourselves arrive, letting others arrive as well. Sounds arriving, sensations arriving, presence arriving as well.
with great respect and with great kindness. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you here to Spirit Rock again and again and again. Some of you have spent the weekend with us, which is so lovely. Um, We're starting a little slowly to allow people to still arrive and kind of get acclimated. My name is Christina Tavera. I am so happy to get to produce this event. It's one of my favorites. You have the entire building to yourselves today, which means uh, if you haven't gone upstairs and gotten to see all those rooms up there, you're welcome to go up there. You're welcome to go into any room that doesn't have a reserve sign on it. You're welcome to make yourself as super comfortable as you'd like. So if you want to take a seat in the back, if you want to get some cushions, some blankets, a yoga mat, um, please be comfortable in this room. You will notice um, that there's an extra sound in here and the um, air purifiers are on. We've got them on low. We will be keeping them on throughout the day. Um, They work only if we keep the windows and the doors closed in this room. So um, if you need to move yourself to the back of the room um, to be more comfortable, please do that, but please do not open up any windows today. Um, Also, uh, be mindful as you're going in and out of the building. Um, Today, we're not going to be holding doors open for anyone. We're just going to close the door behind us to take care of everyone. I'd like to... First, thank the volunteers. Those are the amazing group of folks that were all in the lobby welcoming you and taking your offerings. We literally could not be doing anything here at Spirit Rock without an extraordinary group of volunteers that keeps coming back. They have these little nifty white name tags. Um, Please share the love with them today. And if we're really lucky, they're going to come back again next weekend to help us out again. Rick Hansen. Bienvenido. Welcome back home. It's always an honor to have you back. You made it to some wonderful land and you're back. Maybe you'll show us pictures. I don't know. I'm kind of throwing that out there. Come on. Um, How many of you are new today? How many of you have never sat with Rick Hansen? Good. Awesome. That's so cool. All right. So I'm going to give you a little bit of spiel. He doesn't let me talk too much about all of his great accomplishments, so I have printed out his bio and an email list for him outside in the lobby along with um, all of the books that he's written that we carry. And uh, feel free to check that out. But here you go, Rick. This is the little bit I'm going to say about you. Rick is a psychologist. He's a senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and a New York Times bestselling author. He edits the Wise Brain Bulletin and numerous other audio programs. Rick's newest book, Resilient, is on sale in the bookstore, and we do not charge tax, so it's a 10% discount off the bat, Um, as are his other books and some of his audios. Um, There is an email list for Rick. We do not share your email list with him, so if you want to kind of get more information about what he's doing, sign that email list, and you're going to get a bunch of wonderfulness in your email. Um, And um, if you do buy one of his books, he's usually really nice about signing it for you, Um, but wait till the end of the day for that, please. All right, since there's so many new folks, the folks who've been here before, you can start meditating, and the rest of you listen up, because this is going to make our sangha work really well today. Those of you taking CEs have already signed in because you know what the deal is. So we've all agreed that you've already signed in and you're going to sign out 
by 4.30, not before 4.30. That's how that's going to work. Yay. Thank you for understanding that. To be more comfortable, you are going to sit on any cushions that you'd like. Please take anything you need. If you feel that you've taken too much for yourself, put stuff back so somebody else can use it. Uh, There's kneeling benches in there as well. Turn off your cell phones completely off in this room. This is an electronic free zone. Uh, You are welcome to use your cell phones in the lobby for checking your emails, but for conversations and such, go up to an interview room. Wow, lots of people turning that off. Um, Go upstairs to an interview room and have your conversations on your cell phones up there. That'll be great. Assisted hearing devices, if you cannot hear me right now, are on that back wall over there. our diversity, inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion plan includes all of you taking the mic and making your questions and your requests on amplified systems so that everyone can hear. So basically, you have a question, you raise your hand, Rick points to you, one of the wonderful volunteers is going to run the mic to you and ask the question when you have the mic and rock star this thing, it needs to be close. Uh, yes to food, yes to beverage, yes to this room is quiet during lunch. Uh, the rest of the building is yours. We all know what's going on out there. Um, we have tried to make things more comfortable with making seating. The West and East Hall are open. Uh, take a chair, take a cushion, just be comfortable. Um, but definitely stay indoors. If you are going outside and feel you need a mask, I have a few in my office to the left of the bookstore. Ask me for one of those. Uh, You may wander anywhere on campus except for two places. You do not go past the wooden gates because they are in a silent retreat up there and we're going to support that container. And uh, if you've gotten past the sweat lodge structure, if you're wandering around, you'll know what I'm talking about. You've gone a little too far and we're going to ask you to turn around and come back because you're in the silent area again. I'm almost done. Bookstore. Bookstore, uh, we trust you. That means there's nobody working there. Um, (laughs) 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 But I'll make change for you, and I will help you with the credit card machine, but the instructions are there. Um, Feel free to check that all out. I'm going to close the bookstore about 20 minutes after the class is over at the end of the day, but it's open all day. Um... The final thing I'm going to ask you all, this is a group of almost 180. There's a questionnaire in your email box for anyone who pre-registered. We'd love to hear back from you. It goes all the way up to the executive director. I read it. So um, if you have any notes that would help us make the event go smoother, please write those notes. Um, Please tell us how much you enjoy Rick. And you can tell me personally that I talk too much, and you don't need to write that. (laughs) Gracias, Rick. Thank you, as always. Thank you. Well, here we are, right? Um, In this workshop, I would like to explore with you, as much as possible in a day, some of the most fundamental and, I think, coolest material possible in terms of both reverse engineering what are plausible characteristics of awakening and awakened beings, enlightenment. And also, taking, as they say in Tibet, the fruit as the path, how can we use those ways of being that seems to characterize people who are profoundly realized as practices themselves? So in this uh, workshop, I hope to explore with you experiences and methods for encouraging these experiences of steadiness 
of mind, wholeness, a sense of being whole as a person and expanding out to include mind as a whole, nowness, which I added later, which is neat, it's not in the slide, but we're going to do it, coming right at the front edge of now, continuously. And then using these three, steadiness, wholeness, and nowness, as foundations for experiences of what I call allness, sense of being really connected with everything, being a local expression of the larger whole. And um, through these experiences, I'll be talking about their embodied basis, the ways in which the body, especially its nervous system, is enabling and protecting and fundamentally producing these these fundamental profound states of being of uh, steadiness of mind, wholeness, nowness, and allness. In other words, we'll be exploring uh, how to actually use our minds to encourage states in the body that promote uh, profound states in the mind itself. So that will be our journey here. And um, as we approach the end of the day, uh, I'm actually going to launch a little bit on that foundation as well into uh, a consideration of what the Buddha called the unconditioned, the possibility of what may actually lie outside or beyond or meaningfully distinct from the natural frame. These characteristics of, of, of experience, of ways of being, that we'll be exploring here, steadiness, wholeness, nowness, and allness, I think of them as natural phenomena. Uh, profound, remarkable, important, but fundamentally natural. And as the Buddha taught, um, it could well be, and I don't state this dogmatically, I state it as he did as well, as an invitation, there could well be something that is ultimate, that's timeless, let's say, that's transcendental, that deep states of steadiness, wholeness, nowness, and allness help us become more intimate with or accessible to. And that'll be at the very end of the day. Uh, this day will be quite experiential. I'll slow down to take questions and comments from time to time. Um, as the Buddha taught, in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, ehi pasiko, see for yourself. Come and see for yourself whatever is useful for you and feel really free to leave the rest. You don't need to be an advanced mystical practitioner to do this uh, workshop today. One thing that I really like about it is that it's plain English. It's very straightforward. And what I'll be talking about is actually observable directly in our own experience. And there are practices we can do that are really quite effective. So that's my hope for today. In terms of the logistics, uh, to build on what Christina said, really be comfortable here. Uh, Yes, if we're in great discomfort, physical or emotional, including being blasted by the sunlight coming through if we don't particularly care for it, um, yeah, we can practice through that, but it tends to be harder to kind of relax into the explorations that we'll be doing today. So if you want to move your seat, you know, be aware of other people around you, but feel very free to move, to get up, to lie down, uh, take care of yourself. Uh, If for some reason somebody starts to snore, uh, I have found that it's uh, helpful to just kind of know in advance that maybe another person near you will lightly touch your foot, uh, you know, not invasively. 
Um, and uh, usually just knowing that reduces snoring. So anyway. uh, <laughs> please be sure your cell phone is turned off. I actually got up a moment ago to put mine on airplane mode. So uh, turned off completely unless you need to let it vibrate for an emergency that you're dealing with perhaps. Okay, any questions about logistics or what we're doing? Okay, so I want to create a bit of a framework here um, that we may return to again and again. It's an overarching way that I've found that's really useful, at least for me, to look at uh, practice. How do we practice? I think there are three fundamental ways to engage the mind usefully. The first is the most primary. It is to simply be with what's there. Witnessing the stream of consciousness, accepting it, bringing other qualities to bear that are useful, like self-compassion or being able to tolerate what's there, uh, investigating, exploring, unpacking, disentangling, uh, sensing down maybe to what's younger or more central or vulnerable or softer under the surfaces of what we're experiencing. Simply being with what's there. In the process of being with what's there in our experience, it might change, but we're not deliberately trying to nudge it. This is, in my view, the most primary mode of practice. It's our last resort because often it's all we, sometimes it's all we can do. We can, all we can do is just ride out the storm without making matters worse, if at all possible. And as our practice matures more and more, this is sort of what we're just doing. We're just kind of hanging out being here now in the middle of everything continually changing in a centered in a quality of resilient well-being. Okay. But it's not the only way to practice. And I think in some circles, practice has become mistakenly reduced to only a process of relatively receptive and inert witnessing of the stream of consciousness. As the Buddha taught, if you think of most of the elements of the Eightfold Path, they involve the other two ways to work with the mind, which is to work with it, to actually engage wise effort. This engagement of wise effort has two qualities to it or two aspects to it. The f- one is to uh, prevent or reduce or release entirely that which is painful or harmful to ourselves or others. Releasing tension from the body, venting emotions, letting go of thoughts that make us crazy or others crazy, releasing um, you know, unhelpful desires, you know, letting go. And the third great way to practice is the other aspect of wise effort, which is to encourage or protect or increase that which is enjoyable or beneficial for ourselves and others. For example, to cultivate mindfulness or to cultivate compassion, including self-compassion, or to develop greater grit, determination, or commitment to social justice. These are all cultivations to develop a wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise concentration. These are cultivations. All of these work together. Today I'm going to tend to focus on the third of these because this is a workshop environment. We're going to explore different ways to become more skillful. That's a cultivation. Uh, Ways to develop knowledge of your own brain and body. That's a cultivation. Uh, Also, uh, we'll be exploring the cultivation of states of being. Steadiness, wholeness, nowness, and allness. These are cultivations. But this cultivation process is in the context of the other two great ways to engage the mind. 
in all these ways to engage the mind, we are to be mindful. Another mistake that's crept in in many quarters is to conflate or reduce mindfulness merely to or exclusively to being with uh, our own experience. Uh, We are to be mindful while we are letting go and also mindful while we are letting in. Mindful, as the Buddha taught, under all conditions. To kind of simplify and summarize this way of looking at things, this framework, uh, if the mind-brain system, or if, if, if our experience, if the mind, if not the body as well, is like a garden, we can witness it, pull weeds, or plant flowers. And, of course, they all work together. Or to really summarize it, let be, let go, let in. Okay? That's kind of a framework here, like a roadmap. And often you'll find that this gives you a sort of sequence in which if something is happening, especially if it's upsetting or problematic, we begin by letting it be. We be with it for a while. Sometimes that's enough. Often it's skillful to, after being with it a bit, to nudge it to in some way around letting go, releasing, letting go. And then sometimes it's really useful to replace what we've released with the cultivation of something that's that's beneficial. That's kind of a roadmap. Right? And again and again and again as we do that, we become more able to be with deeper and more fundamental and more traumatic or difficult material. And as we be with that deeper layer, we let it go even more deeply and we replace it even more fully and fundamentally. Okay? Clear? Good? Okay. So this process for me... Ground is grounded in life. Um, I consider um, our experiences to be natural phenomena due to natural causes, mainly, if not perhaps even entirely. Uh, So if we are to cultivate wise view or wise intention or cultivate a growing steadiness of mind, steadiness of present moment awareness that's increasingly unshakable. If we were to cultivate a sense of being whole as a person or opening wide in our own experience or cultivate the capacity to really rest in the present moment or even cultivate a sense of just being interdependent, co-arising with everything else, a local ripple in the vast sea of allness. If we cultivate that, that means changing the body. If there's any kind of lasting change of mind, it requires a lasting change of body. People can be mindful of the body, and also it's true that most fundamentally we are body full of mind. It is the body that is making this mind, this experience of hearing, seeing, sensing, remembering, thinking, wanting, longing, suffering, enjoying, now and now and now and now and now. So we're going to be exploring in a variety of ways, pragmatically, how to get more of those green balls into the coconut. Okay? All right. Is that a question? Or oh, it's an arm stretch. It's good. I like it. I'm going to... It's good. Okay. So how do we change the brain for the better? There's a lot of material about this. Uh, two things. First, uh, in the back of this slide set... There are a lot of references as well as suggested readings. And if you give me your email address and name, I will send you a, a, 
a PDF, a full-color PDF of the slides, which you are also very welcome to use or adapt uh, for your own purposes. Uh, I'll never share your email address with anyone who doesn't work for me. And you're welcome to unsubscribe at any time. And also, if you give me your um, email address, I'll subscribe you to my weekly practice newsletter. Uh, which called, is called Just One Thing. About 135,000 people get it. Uh, it's free, it's weekly, it's short and sweet, and you can, like I said, unsubscribe any time. Um, and if you already get that newsletter, you won't get two copies if you say, if you just give me your name, because we only send one uh, email to a single address. All right, that's the deal. And if you don't want the newsletter, but you just want the slides, just give me your name and email address and say, just slides. Okay? All right. So... Yeah, the sign-up sheet's out there. That's where the sign-up sheet is. Please print neatly. So that's the first point, uh, just for the backup material. On the, so I'm going to tend to focus here more on experiential practice. I'll mention some of the underlying neuropsychology parts, but I'll tend to move through that fairly quickly. Also because, second key point, my website, rickhanson.net, has tons of freely offered material related to all this. Videos, talks, guided meditations, kind of a greatest hits of scientific papers, articles I've written, um, interviews with other people. There's a lot of material there that you can explore further if you like that backs this stuff up. Okay. That said, the fundamental process of brain change is summarized in this increasingly well-known saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb in the 40s and 50s in the previous century. Uh, Neurons that fire together wire together. So we have a two-stage process. Initially, there's an experience of something, and then uh, possibly that experience, which is otherwise passing, can become, in effect, hardwired in one way or another, or stored into the nervous system and in the body more generally. Uh, There's a movement from, in other words, passing states to lasting traits two-stage process. As you may know in general or from my own material, the brain is biased toward turning, I'll call them negative experiences, which is painful or harmful, very rapidly into a lasting change in the brain. Beneficial experiences, those which are enjoyable or useful, tend to not be privileged in this way, so they need some help. That's where the fundamental process that I talk about of taking in the good comes in, of internalizing uh, our useful experiences, not out of attaching or clinging to them or, t- or thingifying them, but rather in an intimacy with our own experience, being vulnerable and, frankly, humble to receive the usefulness of our experiences. Useful sensations, useful ideas, useful feelings, useful intentions, useful know-how, useful skills, and helping them really land and sink in, bit by bit, synapse by synapse. Uh, To quote the Buddha in the Dhammapada, think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. It's okay to do that. It's okay to do that. And actually, as we cultivate, as we fill ourselves with good, our attachment and craving and clinging to the good outside ourselves 
falls away. Actually, as people feel increasingly at peace inside, contented inside, loved and loving inside, the fundamental biological engine of craving, which has to do with a sense of something missing and something wrong, deficit and disturbance, that is actually eased and relieved in this very body and replaced increasingly with a sense of fullness and balance. So we can meet the next moment or the next moment can land on us uh, in a state of resilient well-being that feels already full, already safe enough, satisfied enough, and connected enough already. So cultivation is okay. It's okay to give it to yourself, to receive it into yourself, to let it sink in. And as it sinks in, and we gradually ease the wounds of the heart, gradually feel increasingly full, you can watch the uh, tension and contraction and drivenness of craving and clinging increasingly fall away. Or to summarize all that material really simply, have it. Let yourself have the beneficial experiences, usually because you notice them already occurring. Occasionally you can create them. Have it. And then once you have it, enjoy it. Take it in yourself. Help those green balls really sink in. Here's the quotation I just read, or I just said. And as we take in the good over time, and we allow ourselves to grow and change, which sometimes means simply uncovering, the growth that is uncovering, the beauty and the Buddha nature that was always already there, uh, this process bears fruit. Or as Lao Tzu put it a long time ago, keep a green bough in your heart and a singing bird will come. Okay. Any questions or comments so far on this foundational material? And then we'll move into some practices about steadying the mind. Any questions or comments so far? Perfectly clear? Any confusions? Any, any, any? All good? Yeah, please. So they'll bring you a mic. If you keep your hand up, we have a mic runner. We don't have a mic runner. Oh, we do have a mic runner. You're not a mic runner, but we will get a mic runner because Jesse will make sure. Yep, please do that. Please take it to her. And make sure it's on. Tap it to make sure it's on. Good? And we'll get that organized. Mic runners. Please. I have a very strong propensity to uh, reject my experience. And I feel... What was the word you used? Reject or reach out? Reject Reject. my experience. And I'm very intrigued by what you're saying, but concerned about the pitfall that is very easy of... Uh, rejecting whatever the right. negative experiences to try to grab something positive. Okay. All right, great. Thank you. So just to restate kind of what I'm hearing you say, uh, you're saying you have a tendency to reject experience, but it seems in particular to reject, as it were, quote-unquote negative experience, that which is painful or harmful. That's what I mean by that word. And I'll use even the word bad just because it's simple and only has one syllable. Um, Okay, so, um, and these are really parts of life. 
painful, difficult, challenging experiences, suffering sometimes as part of life. So you're saying you have a tendency to reject that. Um, do you have also have a tendency to reject experiences that are beneficial? Yeah, right. So that's a nice distinction right there. It's not that you're rejecting all experience, but there's a tendency to be aversive to or push away. Really understandable. Uh, when I was in my 20s in the early human potential scene, even in my late teens, uh, in the early 70s, uh, people would say to me, hey, Rick, feel your feelings. I was like, get out of here. I didn't want to feel my feelings. They hurt, right? So, yeah, exactly. So... Um, it's a great question. It's very fundamental. I'll, I'll go back, actually, to this slide because this is what you're really speaking to. Um, first, our capacity to be with negative experiences, to bear them, to stay with them, that capacity is served by the development of strengths or resources inside ourselves, the cultivation of them, that enable us to stay with our pain. Like being able to calm the body or have self-compassion or be able to step back with steadiness of mind and keep witnessing. So these are strengths we cultivate. So cultivation is in the service of staying with our negative experiences and not fighting them, which just makes them worse. Right? That's a key point right there. Really a helpful way to understand it. Um... The second point here is that uh, with a little self-awareness, you can watch yourself and make sure you don't stumble into the pitfall of using cultivation uh, as a spiritual bypass, quote-unquote, as John Wellwood put it, that we use to duck. I will say I've actually rarely seen people do that. I grew up in L.A., and there's a, you know, a certain amount of that going on there, at least when I was growing up uh, in the 60s and 70s. But um, mostly I find that actually people marinate way past the sell-by date in their negative experiences. <laughs> they just, most pain has no gain. It's just pain. And it, it doesn't, make us stronger. It makes us weaker. It makes us more brittle and sensitive and vulnerable. And pain kindles a sensitivity to pain uh, in a vicious cycle. Uh, and it's also true that sometimes pain is a teacher and it brings lessons, but often we could have gotten the same benefit, the same gain, not through the pain, but through other means. And it's true that there's certain kinds of deep lessons and growth that only come to us through pain. Um, okay. Uh, but I think we can overvalue pain and undervalue the fact that the pathway to the development of most of what is beneficial and wholesome inside us, roughly two-thirds of who we are is acquired rather than innate on average. Uh, so we're going to acquire characteristics over time we have characteristics that are not so useful like I don't know what you know pick your poison but then we have characteristics that are indeed useful compassion self-confidence self-worth happiness resilience um, love and we primarily develop those resources inside ourselves those qualities inside ourselves through having experiences of them which are internalized States moving to traits, firing to wiring, right? 
What's the experience of most psychological resources like? It's enjoyable. It's positive. It means that the primary pathway to the development of what we want to grow inside ourselves is through positive experiences. But they're just the first step of that growth. We must also install them inside ourselves. We must internalize them. We must help them become traits inside ourselves that are lasting. It's kind of remarkable to appreciate what I'm saying. The primary pathway to growth, to healing, to development is through experiences that, in a general sense, are positive. Wow. Okay. Great. One last person, then we'll steady the mind. All right. Up front, if mic runner, got a mic runner here. Great. Thanks for doing this. And if you keep your hand up, he'll be able to find you. Thank you. Good. And is it on? Good. It's on. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on what you said. Uh, in my own uh, practice with myself and others, I found that if you uh, reject the pain and you run from it, it doesn't go away. Right. What happens is that you push it down yep. and it goes into your body. Yeah. And that's where illness comes from. Mm-hmm. And, and mental illness and physical illness, it's all pushed down. Yeah. So the best thing to do is to, um, when pain comes, you recognize it, you look at it, you acknowledge it, you feel the pain. Mm-hmm. But it's only for a moment, it passes. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you get rid of it from your mind and body, and then you can focus on the good. Mm-hmm. So... That's Um, great. Thank you. Yes. Um, What I wanted to say was I wanted to see one of the slides while you were talking. (laughs) Which one? The one with the quote. The The Buddha quote? Yeah, the... uh, Keep going. That one. Okay. Good. I'm good. Okay, good. Thank you. And thanks for the comment. That's really true. And um, two little points about this. The first is in that sequence, let be, let go, let in... If we move into letting go or letting in and it doesn't seem to have traction, that's usually telling us we need to go back and let be more fully. We need to feel it more fully or especially feel it down to a deeper layer. It's like the mind is sort of organized like a parfait, um, a layered cake. And uh, often we're not able to get a complete release because we haven't really gotten down to the deeper layers. So that's a good lesson, you know, to... Very consistent with your point. Second, I think it's useful to look at yourself and consider, okay, what are my strengths? And what am I not so strong at in terms of letting be, letting go, and letting in? I started out pretty strong at, you know, let go and let in because I didn't want to feel the pain. I had to really learn to let be. On the other hand, I've known a number of people in the mindfulness, psychotherapy, non-dual, spiritual, et cetera, et cetera, human potential realms, who are very good at letting be, and they're not growing very much. They're not healing. It's the same old, same old. It's actually not releasing. And it would really serve them to become more skillful and intentional about letting go and letting in. And that's a personal exploration, a personal inquiry to see where you're at. Okay? Okay, great. 
Well, let's keep going then, and we'll move into some experiential practice here related to the first of four explorations today, steadying the mind. Um, there's a, a, you know, kind of a quote that's quite well known to, uh, related to William James, sort of the godfather of psychology in America. The education of attention would be the education par excellence. So if you go back to that saying from the work of Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together, you know, kind of to adapt that old saying, you are what you eat. Well, actually, psychologically, you are increasingly what you pay attention to. Attention is like a spotlight in vacuum cleaner. It illuminates what it rests upon and then sucks it into the brain. Right? especially if it's negative. My, my saying is the brain is like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. Uh, we have a negativity bias that very rapidly learns from, learning being that second stage of acquisition, of change, of development of traits, broadly defined. We learn rapidly from moments of stress, hurt, frustration, physical pain, loss, feelings of inadequacy, anger, and so forth. And so it's particularly important to be able to regulate attention so it doesn't just over-ruminate on or marinate in. I hate everyone. I hate myself. Everyone hates me. I hate everyone. You know what I mean? You don't want to do that. The brain's very, very spongy for that negative crud. So we want to be able to regulate attention, including shift our focus from being identified with the negative material to a sense of open, spacious awareness in which we're mindfully witnessing it without being glued to it or hijacked by it or identified with it. That's what makes being with productive. Just being in the negative material is not itself healing or releasing. It's actually reinforcing. It's one we're able to hold when we're able to be with that negative material in a spaciousness of awareness that we start to associate what is disturbed uh, and upset and in pain and so forth. We start to associate that with a field of awareness that is always innately untroubled. Awareness is never disturbed by the disturbances passing through it. You think about that. Much like the screen of a TV uh, can represent anything, or a computer monitor can represent anything, uh, good or bad, happy or not, Bambi or Godzilla can be represented, you know, by the pixels going by. But the screen itself is not disturbed by what passes through it. In the same way, uh, the field of awareness is like that screen. It's not disturbed by what passes through it. Uh, and that's also a way in which we can be aware of the, of the so-called negative without, being, uh, without internalizing it. As Pema Chodron says, you know, um, your mind is like the sky. Everything else is weather. You know, awareness is like the sky. You are the sky. Everything else is weather. It's a way of relating to this material. Okay? But to be able to do that, to be able to disengage from what is hijacking us and move into spacious awareness. Or to be able to move that spotlight vacuum cleaner of attention over to something beneficial and keep it there. That takes regulation, takes control of 
that uh, of what we pay attention to. In other words, it, in, it requires steadiness of mind. Steadiness of mind. It's striking, isn't it? How often, when there's a useful moment, we've realized something, we've, we've let go of something, we feel cared about by another person, we feel good about something, we have a sense of accomplishment, moment of gratitude. How rapidly... Attention moves on to something else. And how hard it can be to actually sustain attention to what's actually useful and beneficial. So that's where steadiness of mind is really, really useful. So we're going to do a practice now, and I'll walk you through it, and then we'll take a break uh, after this. Um, Along the way, I'll explain uh, how these various uh, suggestions, mental factors of steadiness, have a physical neural basis. So... Uh, how many of you, you know, do something contemplative, meditative, or prayerful a minute or more a month? Good. You're good. You're solid. You're good to go. You get the basics. It's good. I put the basics up here for me, what I can fit in one slide. A fundamental stance of goodwill toward yourself. You know, just a simple sense of, hey, I'm, I'm trying to be helpful with myself here for my own sake and probably that of others too. Finding a posture, even if you're lying on the floor, that supports comfort and alertness. Uh, Sitting upright. uh, uh, I like uh, a nice way of describing this from Roshi Joan Halifax, kind of from the Zen tradition. Soft in the front, firm in the back. You know, it's kind of a way to approach life as well. Uh, Sitting up a little straighter, not uptight, comfortable and alert. Uh, You want to help yourself keep staying in the present. Uh, you're, you know, Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, primary teacher of Jack Cornfield and others in the tradition that Spirit Rock sits in, had a simple saying, oh, practice fundamentally is a matter of being aware and letting go, aware and letting go, aware and letting go. Um, helps to have a stable object of attention so that you can tell by contrast what's jumping around. Uh, I'll suggest you use the sensations of breathing, but feel very free to use anything else you want. For some people, especially those with a trauma history, breathing, the breath is not a good object of attention. It's kind of scary. Uh, Maybe sensations elsewhere in the body are useful, like in the feet or the hands that are relatively neutral. You can use a word such as peace or om uh, or uh, just an image or even a simple feeling of, of gratitude. Take gratitude as your object of attention if you like. Something kind of simple. Or lovingness or warmth for others or yourself. So helps to find an object of attention. And when I refer to the breath, feel very free to use something else. And then in the process of this, it's really okay to gently observe and even gently encourage or open to a large process of the mind sort of settling, coming to rest. The mind is sometimes described as uh, like a pond full of sediments and mud and crud. And as we meditate and calm, the sediments settle. And we become increasingly aware of the jewels that were always already there in the base of the pond. So in a moment we'll begin. I just want to mention one more thing that it would have been good to say from the outset. Uh, This is being recorded as the workshops are at Spirit Rock. So 
Uh, two things here. One, be aware of that fact when you use the microphone. And if you want to speak privately with me, uh, feel very free to do that um, at the break. So I'm really quite happy to talk with you uh, or after the workshop. And the other thing to know, though, is that these uh, meditations that I'm going to take you through and the teachings all together will be posted in a week or so. Uh, and you'll get an email that will tell you where to find them. Uh, and they're freely available uh, And um, so if there's anything you like about this and you want to come back to later, just know that it's being recorded and you can check it out later so you can relax while we're doing this. Okay? So I'll refer to five mental factors that support steadiness of mind. There are others that we'll actually explore later on uh, and others that people name that we won't have a chance to get to here. Uh, That said, these five are really fundamental. So I'm going to talk through them with you. As you try to cultivate them, sometimes it'll come easily, and maybe it won't. It's okay either way. And if something is actually difficult to get going in your mind here, you might want to flag it as something, oh, that could be a kind of inner muscle, uh, a resource, an inner strength that would be useful to focus on increasingly in the future. Okay? And then when we're done with these five, I'll encourage you to pick an object of meditation, such as the sensations of breathing, and firmly and steadily devote yourself to it for five whole minutes in a row, unwaveringly, and see how that goes. Okay? So let's begin. Coming into a posture that's comfortable and alert, Arriving here in the present. Allowing whatever appears in awareness to be there while letting it also pass away as it does or change not following anything or resisting anything. Staying present as experiences arise and move along. So as we cultivate the first factor, first mental factor of steadiness, intention. Establishing the intention for steady present moment awareness. Stability of presence. You might have a sense of this top down in which in a way you're giving yourself an instruction Finding a determination. And you 
can also have a sense of this intention from the bottom up in which you get a sense of what it would feel like to have steadiness of mind. Or you imagine others who really embody or illustrate steadiness of mind and give yourself over to that way of being as a bottom-up form of intending. Allowing the intention for steadiness of mind to be established in you. second factor here and feel free to go at your own pace I'll keep moving us along second factor easing the body and breath calming relaxing remaining alert while also allowing the body and the mind to become increasingly tranquil. It might help to deliberately extend several exhalations, which helps the heart rate slow and calms the body. factor, warm-heartedness, without complicating or struggling, 
You might have a sense of breathing in and out through the area of the heart or bringing to mind being simple that you care about, a pet, a friend, feeling your goodwill, your friendliness or caring, lovingness, simple. Opening to and encouraging friendliness, kindness. Warm-heartedness. You might embody this by being aware of the subtle expressions in your face of warmth or caring or lovingness. What happens in your face when you feel loving? When you have good wishes for others? You might put a hand on your heart if you like, or a hand on your cheek, if that strengthens this experience. And in the fourth mental factor of steadiness of mind, see if you can help yourself feel safer. Whatever is reasonable to you. For example, be aware of any unnecessary guarding or bracing in your body. Or any unnecessary worry or anxiety, even subtle forms of apprehensiveness. See if you can let that go. Being aware of being in a protected setting here. Observing directly in this moment and this one, now and now, that you're basically all right. You're actually all right, right now and now. 
See what it's like to shed unnecessary anxiety, knowing you can be aware of what's happening around you, while also feeling increasingly at peace, at ease. It can be such a relief to recognize now, continuously, that you're actually basically all right. It can feel so good to let go of unnecessary fear. Whatever the future may hold, now, you're all right. Not overthinking this, simply focusing on a very simple, elemental sense of ease and all rightness now, disengaging from unnecessary anxiety. And then the fifth mental factor here, opening to and highlighting in your experience whatever might be emotionally positive for you. It could be as simple as a sense of well-being or peacefulness. lovely tranquility, maybe deliberately be grateful, being aware of whatever brings a sense of gratitude or gladness 
it's okay to deliberately call up positive feeling, a sweetness, a happiness maybe, thinking of little kids who make you smile, puppy videos, good times with friends, being in nature, Encouraging authentic, positive emotions, one way or another. might take the form of a happiness that you can practice. Happiness at being able to explore wisdom teachings or could be a feeling of comfort being here with others engaged with you in this. Whatever you find that helps Bring a smile, a sweetness, a subtle well-being, or even an intense joy. You're not clinging to these positive emotions. They will change. They will arise and pass. You're simply encouraging them and allowing them and receiving them. And then on the basis of whatever steadiness of mind has been caused here through these mental factors, pick an object of attention, such as the sensations of breathing in your body altogether or in one place, um, or an image or a word or a feeling, pick an object of attention, and then let yourself be absorbed into that object of attention, devoted to it, disengaging from 
everything else steadily, continuously for the next five minutes.
That was five minutes, and in the last minute or two here, let the sense of steadiness be increasingly established in you. Take in the good. Receive it into yourself of steadiness of mind. What it feels like in your body. The sense of being. Sinking into steadiness as it sinks into you. on back and that was about 25 minutes if you wonder how long that was um, in a moment let's take a break and then I'll, we'll come back and I'll talk about what was presumably happening inside your body especially your brain while you were doing that please come back at 20 minutes too and you might want to protect whatever steadiness you've cultivated during the break See what it's like to remain steadily present as you speak with others, drink water, use the bathroom, take care of things. Steadiness of mind, moment after moment. Okay, see you at 20 minutes to 12. We just did a meditation. So, I'll just stand so over feel here. free to, or okay. or you can take it to your seat when it starts. Okay. It's your call. Okay. Thank you very yeah, much. Thanks, I appreciate Nancy. it. No problem. I'm happy to have
You can hear me now? Yes. So many things. You know, it's like that question, is it plugged into power? You know, like, oh, is the ignition turned on? Is there gas in the tank? Okay, good. So, welcome back. In a moment, I I want to talk about what might have been happening neurologically while you were doing those things mentally. Um, But I want to, if you'll put up with this a bit create a really quick frame of reference here because this topic altogether gets at some very deep subjects about mind, body, what are you talking about, was Descartes right, wrong, what, why does it matter? And it may not matter to you, it definitely matters to some people, so I'm going to kind of walk through it pretty quickly. What do I mean by these words? All right, so there's a bit of a framework here for the whole thing of mind, body, Uh, and so forth, it seems clear to me that there are three distinct but interrelated phenomena. I personally think they are all natural phenomena whose causes are not supernatural or transcendental. They're natural phenomena. First, there is a body. There is a body, there is meat, there is matter. That seems like existing. Okay? Second, there is information, information, signals, instructions, programs, knowledge, meanings. Information exists, but it's intangible. It's immaterial. It's existent, but it can't be touched. You cannot touch the experience of a sound, or you cannot touch a meaning or an instruction. And information needs, as far as we know, a material substrate of some form to represent it. The information represented by the squiggles up there on the screen is not physical, but it requires a physical basis to represent it. If I send you these slides electronically, the you know electromagnetic waves and the internet and then the you know the magnetic charges on your hard drive or your, your device um, those are physical and they represent non-physical information the fundamental evolved purpose of the nervous system is to process information its origins uh, were 600 or so million years ago when multi-celled creatures got complicated enough so for their sensory systems and their motor systems to need to exchange information Sensory systems at the front, you know, smelled or tasted something good, sent a signal to the motor systems in the back, swim forward. Alternately, sensory systems in the front detected something icky or scary or painful, sent a signal to the motor systems, get out of here. 
and the motor systems need to tell the sensory systems how they're operating so the sensory systems can use that in a process of feedback. That's information. All right. So far? Okay. Third distinct uh, aspect of things is our actual experiences. The sense of the color red, a feeling of pain, a uh, feeling of pleasure. Um, I think the sights that a frog has of a fly moving or the plan a squirrel has to get some nuts and put them in the little hidey hole or the um, feelings a human has of closeness uh, or loss with other beings, I think those experiences are natural phenomena. From the scientific standpoint, what is clear is matter and information, because that can be studied from a third-person perspective. To study experiences are trickier, because that requires first-person reporting, uh, which is hard to extract from non-human animals, and even with human animals, raises all kinds of scientific questions. But still, at the end of the day, it seems clear to me, there is matter, there is information, there are experiences. And I think a full account of our experiences uh, will take a century or two or three to come to scientifically. And yet at the end of it all, I think we'll probably discover that our experiences, first of all, are very similar to those of non-human animals, especially simple primary experiences of sensation or perception or um, emotion. And um, also I suspect we'll find that a full account of experiences uh, will include entirely natural causes. Okay, so bottom line for me, um, I find this a useful way to think about it. Uh, that said, when we come into our practice, you don't need to think about it. We could just practice directly. Okay, so that's my framework. So when I use the word mind here, I'm referring to all of the information represented by the nervous system most of which is outside of awareness. Okay? I personally think that um, we will find that our experiences are constructed by, and those also of squirrels and mice and lizards and maybe beetles and spiders, uh, the experiences of creatures with a complex enough nervous system that can enable them, uh, are being produced by some uh, operation of matter and information. I suspect that will be the case. Meanwhile, um, here we are. And we can practice with this breath, this moment, this person, this sound, this sight, right now. All right, that's kind of a framework. I'm not arguing for it. I'm just saying that's how I'm using the words. That's how I think about things. Okay? Matter, information, experiences. Okay. Most of you probably didn't care about that. Okay, good. But I do. Anyway, so I'm going to talk about this stuff now. So, neural factors of steadiness. Briefly, I'll move through this, and we'll move into uh, wholeness, nowness, and allness, and lunch along the way. Um, so, there are two ways to establish intention neurologically, basically. One is really top-down. involves the prefrontal regions right behind the forehead. If there's a chair of the mental committee, uh, that chair probably is really supported by what's happening right behind the forehead, uh, especially... Um, you know, I'll just actually behind the forehead, I'll leave it at that. And uh, we establish intention top down. 
that top-down form of intention has been really privileged in, I think, the West, especially Western philosophy and psychology. Um, There's another form of establishing intention, which is more bottom-up, where we give over to the felt sense already of the end state we're aiming for. So you can give over to, let's say your intention is to be um, caring. Well, that could be as top-down as in, okay, I'm going to get to caringness over there, or you can give yourself over to feeling caring right now. Give over to it and let um, that form of intending, in effect, carry you along. Uh, that form of intending is more grounded in lower and therefore more ancient parts of the brain, subcortical regions that are tracking emotion and motivation, and even brainstem regions that are very involved with kind of primary states of being. Uh, so uh, I think it's really useful, actually, most fundamentally, to use the second form of intending, bottom-up, to give over to and to be lived by um, the felt sense of what it is we intend to be. Okay? Okay? Second, relaxation, or easing, or, or resting, or tranquilizing. It's interesting how many contemplative traditions, including Buddhism, value relaxation and tranquility. And why might that be skillful means? Well... If we are to stabilize the spotlight vacuum cleaner of attention on one object, that's basically steadiness of mind. Now, maybe the object is the present moment with a wide-open awareness of it, but that still is just, in effect, one thing. To do that, um, it really helps to not feel stressed or uh, pressured or alarmed. Because as animals, when we feel stressed or pressured or alarmed or frustrated, attention naturally skitters all over the place. It's looking for threats or it's looking for goodies to get or it's looking for something to fix or something that's wrong in the field of our relationships or inside our own body. That activity, stressful pursuit or management of threats really tends to involve what's called the sympathetic wing of the autonomic nervous system, which, whose function is to kind of help us stay on an even keel day to day and live to see the sunrise. Um, there's a place for sympathetic nervous system activation, especially in terms of healthy enthusiasm or passion or appropriate intensity or fieriness in the service of justice, let's say. Uh, But the sympathetic nervous system goes really readily in the states of alarm or frustrated drivenness, which disrupt steadiness of mind. So it's very helpful to relax and engage the other major wing of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic wing, which is the more ancient of the two wings, which, as scientists say, is involved with resting and digesting rather than the sympathetic nervous system fighting or fleeing. And um, as we relax the body and, like a seesaw, increase activation of the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system that downregulates or decreases activity of the sympathetic fight-or-flight stress response in part 
wing of the nervous system, like a seesaw. One goes up, that pushes the other down. A nice way to increase parasympathetic activation is through long exhalations, because the parasympathetic wing handles exhaling and helps the heart rate slow while that's happening. Uh, Inhaling engages the sympathetic wing of the nervous system more, heart rate speeds up. Um, So one nice way to calm is to deliberately focus on long exhalations. It's not the only way. Okay? And as we become increasingly tranquil, you just feel you're more and more settled in the present. Okay? That's another factor. Third factor, warming the heart. That engages what's called the social engagement system in the brain. Oxytocin is a major component of that system and neurotransmitter and hormone. It's the same molecule. It's just called a hormone when it operates outside the nervous system. Neurotransmitter or neuromodulator or neurochemical in the nervous system, oxytocin. One nice thing about oxytocin is that there are receptors on the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala, for oxytocin, and the activity at those receptor sites is inhibitory. So as we feel more warm-hearted, that tends to calm down the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala, or technically amygdalae, because they're two of most everything, or two amygdalae in the brain. All right? You can, and you can just feel it as, as we drop into compassion or loving kindness or compassion for ourselves. That's soothing. That's calming. That's settling. Feeling disrupted in our connections, including our internalized felt sense of connections, tends to activate us into a sense of threat, something missing, something wrong, in part because of our evolutionary heritage, exile was a death sentence back in the Serengeti Plains. Uh, We could not live alone, uh, literally, literally. Humans or our immediate hominid or not even immediate, our hominid or primate ancestors could not live alone. So when we feel disrupted in the field of connection, it's hard to settle. It's hard to stabilize. So it's a factor of steadiness of mind to warm the heart. Love is love, whether it flows in or flows out. Feeling cared about, feeling caring in ways that are authentic helps us calm and stabilize. I know a number of uh, kind of really senior teacher types, uh, meditators, uh, who will talk about practicing loving kindness for a while when they meditate for five or ten minutes, when they sit down for 40 minutes or so, and then from there go into deeper and deeper states of absorption, warming the heart. Okay? Fourth factor, feeling safer or recognizing you're all right right now. Um, When we're agitated, and this goes also to the point about relaxation, when we don't feel safe, naturally, attention skitters around. And um, it's said that there are two great mistakes an animal can make in the wild, or we humans can make, us, us human animals can make today. One is where you think there's a tiger in the bushes about to get you, some kind of thing coming at you that's going to hurt you or those you care about, but there's really no tiger there. That's one kind of mistake. Second kind of mistake is where you think the coast is clear. Everything's fine. The IRS loves me. Uh, My body's in great shape health-wise, notwithstanding all the things I do to it. But actually, there is a threat there coming to get you. All right? Two kinds of mistakes. What's the cost of the first mistake? Needless anxiety. What's the cost of the second mistake? 
No more mistakes forever. So we have a brain that's designed to have what I call paper tiger paranoia, to feel routinely that it's threat level orange when actually in this moment it's not. There may well be a threat in the future. Something really bad might happen in the future. Things may have happened in the past. But in this moment, not always, but very often for most people, you're basically all right now and now. And now, and coming into the felt sense of that is a wonderful resource for anxiety, including the learned anxiety, if there's a history of trauma or painful uh, experiences. Um, So it's quite remarkable to be mindful of anxiety. I had a, when I was training as a therapist, I'm a therapist, uh, my supervisor said, much like they say in criminal investigations, follow the money. As a clinician, follow anxiety, is what he said to me. It's really a useful thing. And it's really interesting to observe how difficult it is to live for a minute, to walk across a room in your home in which you know everything's fine without one molecule of apprehensiveness or alarm or uneasiness. It's really useful to be aware of subtleties of uneasiness, apprehensiveness, and to help yourself rest increasingly and feeling as safe as you reasonably can. And it really helps to that, to know that you can feel all right while also being vigilant. And while also knowing that you are strong, you are determined, you will do the best you can so that in the core of your being, you can feel at peace. That too supports steadiness of mind. And then last one of these five, positive emotions are really interesting. Um, So uh, why would I go there? Why would I talk about gratitude or or well-being or the pleasures of tranquility or lovingness or what have you? Or just remembering fun with friends or being in Tuolumne Meadows or uh, some nice place. Why would that aid steadiness of mind? Well, it's interesting to kind of underline this point that in the Buddhist meditative tradition, there are these five known factors of deep, profound, non-ordinary states of steadiness of mind, of concentration, uh, in, in terms of the uh, wise concentration or right concentration element of the Eightfold Path. And those five factors are applying attention, sustaining attention, joy, we'll come back to that, bliss, and unification of awareness. So it's interesting that in a meditative tradition, going all the way back to the Buddha himself, that's utterly prepared to engage renunciate, even ascetic practices, highly disciplined, why would there be such a valuing of pleasurable, enjoyable, emotionally enjoyable experiences as factors of steadiness of mind? And by the way, a teacher of mine, Christina Feldman, said that the factor that's sometimes translated as joy actually is a continuum that moves from happiness to contentment to tranquility. And it's nice to appreciate that full range, happiness to contentment to tranquility, as counting for this joy factor. In Pali, uh, the language of early Buddhism, the word for it is sukha. Pali and Sanskrit are very close related. The root of the word for sucrose or sugar is sukha, sweet. There's a sweetness in that 
that joy. Happiness, contentment, and tranquility. So why would joy, uh, happiness broadly, um, or bliss steady the mind? There are multiple reasons for that, um, but one of them has to do with a very interesting feature of a major neural substrate of the the field of awareness, moment to moment to moment. So uh, one of the major substrates, as I'm pointing to my own head, uh, that has to do with what is kind of like what's called working memory, or in a computer terms, RAM, random access memory, you know, that which is representing what we're aware of in the moment. Those neural substrates are in the upper, outer, frontal regions of the brain. It's a major part of them, all right? And if you operationalize steadiness of mind, it means essentially stabilizing what's in those substrates and not getting distracted. Now, maybe what's stabilized there is moment-to-moment consciousness, but we're just with moment-to-moment experience rather than getting lost in thought and sucked back into, as it were, the default mode, uh, more toward the middle back regions of the brain, where we go into the simulator, or I sometimes call it the ruminator. Okay? So we have these substrates of working memory, and think of it a little bit like, um, uh, I'm going to kind of a whiteboard, So we want to stabilize the contents of that whiteboard. That means, in effect, steadiness of mind. All right? Well, I should probably use a different metaphor, but anyway. Those, the whiteboard, as it were, has a neurological gate that when it's open, new stuff can come in and we can be distracted. But when that gate is closed, then, boom, we stay focused on what's there whether it's a fifth grader focusing on learning long division or us today, staying with something relatively unstimulating like the sensations of breathing at the upper lip minute after minute. What regulates that gate? That gate is regulated by dopamine. Dopamine, a neurotransmitter that tracks uh, reward and um, responds to decreases of reward, as well as opportunities for new reward. When rewards are steady, the gate stays closed, which makes sense, because then we keep focusing on that which is rewarding. On the other hand, when the sense of reward drops, the gate to these substrates of working memory opens, and we're very distractible, which is adaptive in the wild, because, you know, we need to be open to new opportunity. Also, when there's a a spike of potential reward, when there's a potential reward that comes into view, uh, dopamine spikes, that also opens the gate. To use a goofy metaphor that's actually from this very complicated neurological paper about all this, imagine an an ancient uh, ancestor, a monkey in a tree, eating bananas in this tree. As long as I'm eating bananas in this tree, I'm focused on this tree, steady dopamine, gate to substrates of working memory closed, all good in this tree. The bananas drop away in this tree, then I'm not so stimulated, I'm not so rewarded, I start looking around for other bananas elsewhere. That makes sense. On the other hand, as I eat bananas, if an appealing other monkey swings onto a branch nearby, opportunity for more reward develops, what bananas? How you doing? What's going on? How's it going today? See, that's a very simple mechanism. 
Okay? What happens when we're experiencing sustained and intense positive emotion? And by the way, you can be intensely contented or intensely tranquil if that's all that's pervading awareness. It's operationally, it's functionally intense, okay? Well, when we're experiencing steady positive emotion, steady dopamine streams, keeps the gate closed. And if we're experiencing an intensity of positive emotion, including what feels like bliss or sometimes translated as rapture, especially in a whole body kind of experience, the levels of dopamine are at the top of their range. They're at the top of their range, they're at the ceiling, and they can't get a spike. Isn't that interesting? Happiness, including intense experiences of, of happiness, even with sorrow and pain and, and knowledge of how others are not doing well, is, can also be present. But that, you could say, intense felt sense of well-being in the core is a factor of steadiness of mind. Isn't that cool? Also, as we feel, notice the word craving up there, as we feel um, safer, our need for safety is handled in the moment. As we feel warmer in the heart, our need for connection is handled in the moment, relatively or enough, sufficiently. And also, as we experience positive emotions, our fundamental need for satisfaction is handled sufficiently in the moment. Uh, To draw on the work of other scientists, I've developed this model of our three basic needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, the management of which is loosely related to the reptilian brain stem, I'm simplifying, the mammalian subcortex, and the primate human cortex. Safety, satisfaction, connection. So, in these, fi- in these neural factors, as you pet the lizard, as it were, and help yourself feel safer and more all right and more relaxed, which also includes often a sense of strength and grit and capability, and you can deal with threat. Also, as you experience more satisfaction, more positive emotion, more gratitude, more happiness, more contentment, you're, in effect, feeding the mouse. Right? Subcortex, mammal. And then, last, as you feel warm in the heart, you feel connected, you're hugging the monkey. As I put it in my very dorkish way. (laughs) Pet the lizard, feed the mouse, hug the monkey. So, as you help yourself in these uh, mental factors that I've reviewed here, to rest increasingly and feeling safe enough, whatever the future may hold, in this moment now, satisfied enough now, uh, an enoughness already, and also as you help yourself rest in a felt sense of relatedness. That's, that's okay, that's good enough, it's all right. It would be nice if more people liked you, it would be nice if you got more five-star ratings on Amazon, but, you know, it's pretty good already. Uh, resting there, and your own goodness of heart. You're aware of that, your own warm heart for others. As you do that, craving falls away. It's reduced. Craving, which is always looking outside of this moment. And instead, which supports steadiness of mind, you can feel a fullness already. Okay. Got it? All right, questions or comments so far? Right there. 
And then I'm going to do a practice before we slide into lunch. Just regarding the neural substrate for focusing attention, you're talking about the anterior cingulate cortex? I was really talking, that's great, so you're knowledgeable. I was mainly talking about the dorsolateral frontal, prefrontal cortex, upper outer frontal. The anterior, which means frontal cingulate cortex, is also really involved, in, as you know, in especially top-down regulation of attention. Um, but this little bit I was doing there about how high experiences of reward stabilize the contents of working memory. That's a little different mechanism. Okay, one, and the second part to that, because there's varying opinions on this, do you think that the anterior cingulate cortex is part of the limbic system or the neocortex? Okay, so a little inside baseball or inside brain ball here, right? Um, so cingulate cortex has gotten a lot of attention, especially research on meditation. I'm pointing at my head. It's on the inside, okay, of the cortex and in the kind of the middle and lower. So as a rule of thumb, the brain evolved kind of like a tree from the middle outward and then spreading down around the edges. So the more that we're talking about a part of the brain that's in the middle and lower, the more ancient it is in its evolutionary origins. And in a lot of ways, often the more fundamental it is, especially in terms of motivation or perception uh, and uh, to some extent emotion. So we have this part of the brain Interior just means frontal. It's the cingulate cortex. It's kind of in the middle and down. Um, so it's pretty important. And the frontal parts of it are very involved in the top-down deliberate regulation of attention, of attention. What's interesting is that as people become deeply absorbed in an object of attention or through training, they develop steadiness of mind, activity in this anterior frontal part of the cingulate cortex, two of them, on both sides of the brain, tends to reduce because uh, as we go into deeper and deeper states of absorption, deliberate top-down control is less and less needed. And also as people develop natural habitual steadiness of mind, that deliberate top-down control is less and less needed. That's really kind of interesting, isn't it? And it's, those neurological changes tend to track individual changes. So that's kind of a setup here. As to whether that part of the brain could be categorized as part of the limbic system or not. People debate about all that. I, I find myself a lot of that not that useful. Um, and the whole brain works together. And also the cingulate cortex is pretty involved in the integration of thinking and feeling. So one of the benefits of training and meditation is greater integration of feeling and thinking so that people become more and more able to bring clarity of thought to intense emotion, and also more able to warm up sometimes an overly Spock-like nature, as I had to learn how to do, numb from the neck down when I landed in adulthood. Okay, so I'll just leave it at that. I really want to keep going experientially, if it's okay. So the, the, I'll, I'll keep going. And then we'll, I'll, maybe I'll take more questions or comments uh, at, when we slide into lunch, if that's okay. Um, so I'll do that. Okay. So I want to move now into enjoying wholeness. All right. So I want to create a little perspective here. If you look at the structure of being upset about something, 
or subtle forms of tension or uneasiness or being bothered. The structure is that a part of the mind is struggling with another part of the mind. So as an example, you see a cookie. So now you have a perception of cookie. Then there's I want the cookie, second part. Then comes in the voice. No, cookies have gluten. You don't get a cookie, right? Third part. Then comes in Tara Brock's voice or your fairy godmother's. No, honey, you've worked so hard today. You get a cookie. It's okay. And then a fifth voice comes in. I'm psychotic. This is crazy. Parts swirling with parts, right? That's the structure of suffering. And you can just observe directly. Anytime you're bothered by something or upset about something or driven or frustrated about something, parts struggling with parts. On the other hand, when we go out into mind as a whole uh, and we take mind as a whole, there may be pain, there may be desire, there may be emotion arising, but there isn't a problem there because you're out at mind as a whole. And uh, this is a pretty deep notion. The key, as with all of this, is to see for yourself. See for yourself. And take some time with it. But it's quite remarkable to observe the ways that attention tends to skitter, like a narrow spotlight from this to this to that. Or you could say the same thing a little differently. One thing after another is foregrounded under the spotlight of attention. But when we widen at the spotlight, which we're going to do in a moment in a little meditation here, then it's interesting how a quality of ease really starts coming in. So what helps us experience mind as a whole? Here is where some practical neuroscience is really useful. A lot of neuroscience is not relevant to practice. It might be neat, but it's not actually useful. Um, And if you can read something that uses neurological language and replace the neural terms with good old-fashioned plain English psychological terms or terms from the humanities with no loss of value, why use the neurological terms? Unless maybe it helps motivate people to think that, oh, I'm changing my brain. But otherwise, what are you trying to do? You know, uh, so on the other hand, there are some areas where I think uh, neuroscience is really, really useful, including understanding why, for example, happiness helps steady the mind, especially if you've been afraid to encourage positive emotion intensely. So in this area, research has found that, to summarize a lot of stuff, it's been developed further from when this paper came out 10 years ago. So um, when we're doing task-oriented doingness, right? We're applying ourselves to a problem. Um, Or when we're spun out into rumination uh, or fantasy, we tend to use, we tend to activate mainly midline cortices, the blue parts of the brain up there. Good. In the midline. On the other hand, when in MRIs or otherwise, we drop into present moment awareness, right here, right now, little sense, not in the future, not in the past, less sense of I, less sense of me, myself, and I. We tend to activate networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right side for right-handed people whose right hemispheres are involved with gestalt or holistic processing, which is on the left side 
for roughly half or so of left-handed people. Lateral networks, side networks, distinct from midline networks. We all have had this experience. Um, There you are meditating. Breath, breath in the moment. Lateral networks are active. Breath, breath. We need more milk. (laughs) Shopping list. Yeah, I need to get bread. Got to go to the store. Safeway. Is Safeway going to be open? Got to get some money. My partner needs to make more money. (laughs) Breath. So go back and forth. Now, because neurons that fire together wire together, modern culture and standard schooling, first grade, kindergarten on, is an intense training in firing midline experiences, including through entertainment and media, toward toward the back, or task-oriented doing and conceptualizing and engaging the future and the past in the front. So we tend to develop a lot of wiring in these midline cortices, which can create a kind of internal tyranny, almost a hegemony, in which we try to move out to the lateral mode of just present moment holistic awareness that gets very rapidly hijacked by you know the, the, the forces in charge in the capital, in the midline, as it were. Some people would do well to be better at midline activation, especially toward the front, like our son who didn't realize that he had to check a little bureaucratic box at, in college, and as a result, he had to stay in college an extra semester and have to pay for it himself. So that was a little wake-up call. On the other hand, you know, uh, most of us, me included, uh, really would be served by being able to at will sustain more lateral mode activation of being, of simply being in the present. Okay? What helps sustain lateral mode activation? There are multiple ways to activate the lateral networks, research shows. Focusing on the present moment, which I'll talk more about after lunch. Disengaging from problem solving. Once you've solved it, you don't need to keep revisiting it. Disengaging from ruminating. Uh, The Tibetan teacher Soknya Rinpoche has a saying, sure, think the same thought again and again and again. That's okay, but 10 is enough. Right? At some point, we've been lapping the track. We got it already. We can hang up the phone. We don't need to keep doing that. Um, relaxing the sense of me uh, as a character in your inner mini-movies or relaxing the sense of a rigid perspective of I, that helps uh, disengage activation in the midline and sustain lateral mode activation, which helps you get a sense of things as a whole. Widen into a panoramic view. I'll be talking about that a little bit experientially. It helps to rest in uh, a sense of not knowing, of freshness, beginner's mind, possibility, because midline networks are very involved with conceptualizing and abstracting and categorizing. If we're just in the present, more and more, as we'll talk about after lunch, close to the present moment, we're less and less... Uh, caught up in categorizing and knowing and conceptualizing. So it helps have an attitude of don't know. It's not duh, ignorant. It's just don't know. Oh, oh, oh. And then last, which we'll do right now, sense your body as a whole. When we gradually, and you'll see this in this meditation we're about to do, 
open out into your body as a whole that naturally reduces conceptualizing and problem solving and fantasizing and opening into your body as a whole is a lovely first step to opening out into your mind as a whole. Okay? So let's give it a whirl. So, in a moment we're going to do this practice. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with an area, uh, and I'll talk about the sensations of breathing, but you can ignore the breath if you like. Just be aware of your body as a whole. If, if awareness of the body is at all troubling, it can help to start by resourcing yourself with a sense of recognizing that you're actually okay. Uh, also resourcing yourself with a sense of warm-heartedness, basic well-being, and then um, staying in touch with the sense of that as you uh, s- drop down increasingly into and open into a sense of your body, as uh, a sense of your body. Okay? If you're like me, when you first start doing this, it might be weirdly hard to sustain the sense of the body as a whole. I suspect people that are like dancers or they're more in their bodies or also people who live more in nature, such as hunter-gatherer people, might be much more able to stay, to drop into it naturally. But with practice, if you're like me as well, you can actually do this increasingly. And over time, it becomes a really lovely way to uh, be aware of your body as a whole. Tension and suffering drops right out. So when you, you know, as they say in the monasteries, think you're so enlightened, go home for the holidays. Some of us are going to be going home for the holidays, or the holidays are going to be coming home to us, or whatever. And uh, there you are, you know, Uncle Bob's rattling on about something or other, and you're just aware of everything, the whole room, the volume of space in the room, the whole body... It's cool, Bob. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again, Bob, really. Okay, it's a nice little trick, okay? Okay, good. You ready? So let's give it a whirl. Here we go. So think of this as an exploration in the inner laboratory. Be aware, first of all, you know, of as you breathe here, there are sensations related to breathing throughout your whole body. Kind of scout around for a little bit for a minute or so. In other words, as you breathe, be aware, wow, there are a lot of sensations related to breathing from the top of my head, even all the way down to the tips of my toes, in my front, my back, inside and outside, on the surface of my body, a lot of sensation related to breathing. Okay, and then pick an area such as in your chest, maybe six or eight or nine inches across, in which as you breathe, there are distinct multiple sensations in that area. And see if you can Experience all those sensations in that area as an ongoing 
continuous whole. For example, we do this naturally in terms of what we see. Where what we see is experienced as a single whole with many things in it. In the same way, you can sense a region in your body with multiple sensations in it related to breathing as a single whole. The sense of the whole naturally might crumble. Simply come back to it again and again. It can help to have a sense of receiving sensation, not going out to it, more receiving it. It can also help to have a sense of attention widening, including. As you like, explore widening the field of awareness to include more and more of your body, including all the sensations there as a unified gestalt, a single percept continuously, such as widening to include the whole chest including the diaphragm Sensations in the sides of the chest as well as in your back.
It's all one experience, continuously. Going at your own pace, but I'll name some things, including your abdomen, the lower parts of your back, base of your pelvis, all the sensations in your torso. Widening to include all of them as a single whole. including the internal sensations of cool air coming down your throat, internal sensations of the chest rising and falling as you breathe. You can also include the top of your shoulders, your neck and throat, aware of sensation in your shoulders, your upper and lower arms, even in your fingers and hands as you breathe, (coughs) including this as well.
also aware of sensations in your neck and the back of your head, the top of your head, your head rising and settling as you breathe, sensations also in your face, around your upper lip and nose. Any other sensations in your face and throat? All included. Also sensation in your hips as the torso moves while you breathe. Gradually including as well sensations in your legs, knees, lower legs, even feet. Subtle sensation as you breathe. Widening to include all the sensations of breathing in the body as a single experience continually. You can include as well other sensations in the body unrelated to breathing. The pressure of a chair. A bit of cool air brushing against your cheek. some physical pain. All sensations as a single whole.
you're being receptive and inclusive and present. also include sounds along with sensation as we bring in more elements of experience sounds and sensations known together continuously Increasingly, if you like, you can widen to include thoughts, imagery, all of experience as a single unified whole all of its elements known and included as a whole. Widening all the way, you can include awareness as present, along with sensation and sound and thought. You can include also perspectives, points of view, the sense of being an I witnessing experience, all that too, part of the mind process unfolding continuously. A single whole process occurring.
you can get a sense of the whole mind process occurring without a problem. Simply the mind process unfolding. Edges softening, one whole process. Simply you, most fully, unfolding. as a whole, streaming along.
As we start to finish up, you might like to open your eyes if they're not already open and see what it's like to include sight as part of the everything you are unfolding, streaming. Remaining aware of aspects of your experiencing other than seeing. As you include seeing. taking a moment to register to the extent it's real for you. What's it like to be be a whole? Everything included. Nothing left out. Nothing privileged in the mind. Simply a mind process streaming along. What's this like? In a moment we'll have lunch, but I'd like to offer a couple of comments briefly, and then we can talk more about this when we come back from lunch. Um, first, I, I recognize that, and I hope you do too, that the practices I'm drawing you into, especially if they're not familiar to you, can be challenging at first. It's, it's natural if it's hard to sustain it, or if you only have a few moments where it felt like you dropped in and then otherwise you were gone somewhere else. That's really normal. And neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you practice this again and again and again, you really can develop these as traits. For myself, I've appreciated teachers of mine who did not hold back 
And I think sometimes teachers can be, in a way, patronizing to think that, well, you're just not ready for this. My feeling is, like the Buddha, he laid it all out. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to, in that spirit, go for it here. Uh, and it could well be difficult. Second, um, what I'm speaking to is not mystical or esoteric. It is really clear in any moment there's the whole of the stream of consciousness in the moment, including awareness in the moment. It's all there. And I'm only talking about stabilizing the experience of what's actually the case, which is there is mind as a whole, continually, moment after moment after moment. And with practice, and I speak from experience, uh, you can increasingly just be dropped in, mind as a whole. And you might have a sense also that as mind as a whole is not a problem. There may be things to do, things to deal with, challenges to face, pain to manage, but it doesn't feel like a problem in mind as a whole. Okay. So, how about we have lunch? How about coming back in an hour, five minutes to two? I really encourage you to come back. We're going to get even further into the deep end of the pool. I will end sharply at 4.30, fear not. Uh, So I hope you come back. Five minutes to two. See you then. And by the way, notice that you can keep experiencing your whole experience as a whole, even as you have lunch and talk with other people. Okay, take care. Come on back at five minutes to two. Sorry I didn't get you. Sorry. Yeah.
Oh, yeah.
So does that mean you went to India?
But it's so, so much fun. Yeah. Had 
Sorry to be a bit late here. Um, let's see, I wanted to say something about steadiness of mind and then open it up for any kind of questions or comments about the practices that we did just before lunch. It's, it's natural when you're sitting here and everybody else is kind of perfectly still and you yourself are bored or restless or fidgety to think somehow you're a bad meditator, a uh, bad yogi. And um, the truth is that there is natural diversity of temperament, natural biologically, neurologically based diversity of temperament in which some members of the human tribe are relatively still and I think metaphorically as sort of quiet, settled, sometimes rigid turtles. And at the other end of the human tribe, distribution of temperament in terms of activity level and stimulation seeking and perhaps distractibility are jumpy, spirited, creative, restless jackrabbits with a lot of tweeners kind of in the middle. That's me. All right. So we need, the tribe needs all types. The problem is a lot of meditative methods have been developed by turtles, for turtles, in turtle pens to make them better turtles. What do you do if you're naturally more like a jackrabbit? And or if you've grown up in a more jackrabbity modern culture like ours today, and or what do you do if you've grown up in environments or you've had uh, events occur to you that naturally make you skittery and vigilant and edgy? What do you do, right? It's really important to, in my view, honor oneself and to adapt methods for whatever is your own nature at this point. And um, be willing, for example, to meditate more by moving than sitting still. Some people can come do more of an inner stillness when their body's more active. Or use objects of attention that are more stimulating, such as awareness of the breath on the whole body, more stimulating than awareness of the breath, let's say, at the upper lip. Or uh, use objects of attention like positive emotion, gratitude. We're just kind of marinating in um, being by the seashore. What's it like to be by the seashore? That's your object of attention. You know, moment after moment after moment. So that's really, really important. The key, of course, as with so many things, is to... um, use our methods as means to an end. That's their purpose. And often people kind of can get caught up in a method and get attached to it, losing sight of what is its point. Uh, The point fundamentally is uh, a steadiness, a stability of presence, uh, more and more of an equanimity in the core of our being that has a sense of well-being in it. That's that's the aim, with with a warm and caring heart. So everything is in the service of that. And if um, that means that you meditate by while doing jumping jacks, I don't know, I've never seen that happen, but I think that's possible. It's great. And over time, you may find, and I've known people who were spirited, even farther out, let's say the so-called attention deficit, hyperactivity level of temperament, which I think is a natural variation, not itself a disorder, um, who did, people like of that temperament, who did various trainings in martial arts or athletics or qigong, who 
remained who they were while developing more and more of a core of inner stillness uh, as a field through which busyness moves or at the, the center of their being. So it's very important. And uh, so feel really free in here, of course, to adapt any of my suggestions for what works for you. Uh, and also, uh, truly, if anything is difficult for you or upsetting, generally this material shouldn't be that. But if it does stir something up, I mean shouldn't in the sense that it's we're not going after your traumatic childhood or anything like that. Um, still, if something gets stirred up for you and you're just uncomfortable or don't want to do it, really, feel free not to do it. Just check out, tune out, stand up, leave, come back, um, look out the window, do what works for you. Okay? All right. Questions or comments about what we did there or anything so far? Uh, and mic runner, volunteer over here. If you keep your hand up, get that mic to you. It's happening over there. Great. Thanks. By the way, it's a little chilly in here. I think we're deliberately, or they're deliberately, not running the heating system to reduce air coming in from the outside. So if you're cold, there's a reason for it. I'm cold. I'm usually pretty hot, especially teaching. Okay, please. I loved what you were talking about uh, with stillness and the gate of attention opening and closing based on the dopamine, which, yeah. uh, based on rewards. So my question is very simple. Um, can you refer us to some further readings about that, whether it be that paper you mentioned or your own writings? Right. Um, great. So on... <clears throat> I'm There's a famous neuroscientist whose name I'm blanking on at Princeton who wrote this paper, this material on the gate of attention and I know I cited his work in Buddha's brain but I can't remember his name right now alas Uh, and I can't do it Uh, so but if you go to the section in Buddha's brain in the bookstore, you don't even have to buy the book and go to the section <laughs> on, I think, steadiness of attention and then you'll see it referenced there and you can look it up. I think his name starts with a G. I forget it. I'm so sorry. But you could find... Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I'll try to do that on the break. If you come up to me with the book on the break, I definitely will find it for you. But check it out. And um, more generally... It is really striking that there's such an emphasis in the, particularly the early Buddhist tradition, kind of the closest we can come, the Theravadan tradition it's called, to what the Buddha actually thought and taught. There is really an emphasis there on bliss. Uh, In the, um, the seven factors of enlightenment, of awakening, bliss, bliss, not just joy, but bliss, rapture or bliss, um, PT in Pali, is one of the seven factors. Also tranquility, which is really peaceful and, and delicious, is another one of the factors. So right there you have two out of seven, a uh, pretty high fraction, that have to do with in, pervading intense uh, immersions in positive emotion as factors of awakening. My own practice um, if I were to mark some major steps, one of the major shifts was around focusing on concentration and steadiness of mind. 
And a second major shift was really focusing on positive emotion, including as uh, two of the five jhana factors. And um, another major shift or breakthrough happened related to um, generosity. This was Buddha's fundamental teachings, primary teaching typically, going from place to place. Generosity. And, and lately this material has been really neat too. Uh, I don't know if you know this. I'm, I've taught some of this material in a 10-day retreat recently, and I'm writing a book about it. It's my next book. Uh, Neurodharma, the deepest roots of the highest happiness. It's about these seven fundamental uh, aspects of awakened mind that we can take as experiences ourselves. Steadiness, lovingness, fullness, and then wholeness, nowness, allness, and timelessness. Timelessness, going out to the transcendental. And if you have any interest in that material, you might, might want to mark the dates, September 20th and 29th. I'm going to do this retreat again in Colorado in 2019, September 20th to 29th, and it'll fill up. So you might want to just reserve in at Shambhala Mountain Center, up in the mountains. Anyway, if you have any interest in that. So this material also has been really neat for me. But that said, positive emotion, the power of positive emotion as also a vehicle for releasing craving has really, really been powerful for me. Great. A couple more right here. Good, right there. If you keep your hand up, that's great. Thank you for doing this, oh, volunteer. So in four days, I'm going to be with a sister that from childhood... Um, we've had conflict. And I practiced last time we were together the relaxing of my body by softening my eyes from the article that you had written about that. Mm. And it was amazing that I softened. But then when you get pummeled, (laughs) it worked the first time, it worked the second time, and by the third time it was like, i got to get the hell out of here. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just wondering, because I got my feet on the ground here, um, and I can do this a couple, but when you're pummeled and you have to get away, or I don't know if you can speak to that. Or Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for bringing that up. And um, first, it... <clears throat> Reminds me of this quote from Upandita, a really esteemed teacher, no longer alive. And he says, the, essentially to paraphrase it, the purpose of practice, he says Buddhist practice, but I'm going to expand it because I think that's true. He says the purpose of practice is to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. So in that, we have first the fact that we start where we are. And maybe we can be free the first time that person pummels us. Maybe the second time, but by the third time, we're caught. But it used to be just the first time. But now we're up to the third time. Woohoo! Progress! <laughs> but still. And then over time, we expand. And it's a progressive process of expansion. And it's aided by many things. It's aided by insight sometimes, where... Uh, We recognize that what's happening right now is, in a sense, empty of solidity. It's existent, but it's made up of many parts. It's dynamic. It's shifting. There's no owner. There's no director. It's just happening. 
and that insightful recognition of the event and certainly our experience of the event, vipassana, insight, into its empty nature, is, is kind of freeing. And that's pretty, can seem kind of conceptual at first, but it gets more real. That might help us. Also deepening inner calm, uh, building up inner resources of, of, uh, that feel validating and encouraging and caring so that we're more and more able to withstand those who are devaluing and contemptuous and tear us down or hassle us all the time. It is, you know, internalizing experiences of feeling like a thou to others uh, helps us over time build more of a stability inside that can handle being itted by others. You know, the Martin Booper structure of relationships, I thou, I it, it it, you know, right? So we develop it over time. And um, the second thing that, so all that's good. So first we develop it over time. Second, uh, Pantita is not talking about we expand the range of situations in which we're free. We expand the range of experiences in which we're free. And this gets to a profound possibility that feeling pummeled may arise in the mind with associated feelings of hurt, anger, why don't others step in, all of it. Um, And can we be free in relationship to that experience arising inside us? That's equanimity, where we have a kind of internal freedom um, or stability of all rightness, even as 99% of our mind is on fire. Right? So, over time. The how-to, I think it helps. Um, there's this funny term. I'm a devel- I have a background in developmental psychology. So, there's a funny term, the zone of proximal development. It's a fancy term. It's like our green zone or our growing edge. Like you teach a child to swim. And if you hold their hand, they don't. If we hold them up, they don't swim. But if you get more than a little bit away, they freak out and sink like a stone. The trick is to be just within range. I think we can help ourselves in that same way. Maybe you know, I can handle 40 minutes with you. And after that, I'm no longer able to stay in the green zone, as I put it. But I get dragged into yellow and then red, in which I'm just reinforcing my reactivity to you and your impact on me. We're, we're metal on metal at, by 40 minutes. So I need to get out with my, I still have some brake pads between me and you. Shock absorber, kind of buffer. See what I mean? We're helping ourselves. So there's a place for helping ourselves, really. Just to know for yourself what, what is your zone of proximal development for whatever this is. And then helping yourself grow more and more into it. Including setting your boundaries and clocking out. And last I'll just finish. What's the line from Maya Angelou, I think? She says, when people show you who they are, believe them (laughs) in a way and you know maybe you give them a chance maybe you give them a chance maybe you give them a chance you know what I mean but walks like a duck quacks like a duck eats like a duck scratches like a duck probably a duck and after a while you just go you know bless you really bless you over there (laughs) two cents okay a couple more right there I have a question about um, 
the letting in yeah. positive emotions. So if you're working with a difficult emotion, painful or challenging, and you're being with it and maybe letting go, when it comes time to call in or let in a positive emotion, does any positive emotion work in terms of um, mm. creating a beneficial state not necessarily related to the difficult or painful situation? Could it be for something or someone else? So physiologically, right. is that work and, and otherwise? That's very interesting. So <clears throat> if you'll indulge me just for a moment, I'll say one more little thing about what you brought up, which is... I'll say what the Buddha taught, and then I'll just give you a personal take as well. He really emphasized good company. And he emphasized as well sustaining the inner freedom of compassion and kindness, even for those who attack us. And he, in a famous sutta, sutra, he used the example of even if bandits were to cut, you, cut your arms off with a two-handled saw, you should sustain compassion and kindness for them. Now, that is obviously a very hard bar. So there is that element of, you know, sustaining compassion and kindness for those who are difficult, let's say, for us. And also, though, he really emphasized good company. And good company means disengaging from bad company and giving yourself the freedom to just steer clear of certain people or disengage from certain kinds of interactions that aren't really good for you anymore. And that, and then my own internal, my own two cents, take it as that, is I think sometimes people in the more, you know, who are more inclined toward warm-heartedness and caring and kindness and so forth can be overly willing to be invaded by other people and taken by them. And I, I really want to just, uh, and especially if, if a person belongs to any group that's been socialized, to really take care of other people and to feel responsible for their well-being, such as classically women, to generalize. Um, not exclusively so, but classically. Uh, then I think it's especially important to be attentive to your own deep inner wisdom about, you know, what is my duty to you and what is my duty to me and to others that I can actually do more for if I'm less worn down by you? What is my duty? And I have the right to see what I see and stand for myself in relationship here. And I might conclude that I'm just going to listen to you and give you half an hour of my attention as the least bad option I've got. I might conclude that. But I conclude that freely. And alternately, I might con conclude that, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with you many, many times. It's script-like. You're like the Terminator in the first movie. You know, it's coming at you, coming at you, coming at you. Uh, clear seeing, wise view, discernment means recognizing that coming at you, coming at you, motivated to come at you, rewarded by coming at you, and it's not going to change. And the best thing we can do for ourselves is to disengage and reserve the right to do that. Personal opinion. Um, good. Okay.
here. Very briefly, to restate the question, if we're working with some, let's say, negative material, maybe we're worried about something, or maybe we're frustrated about something, or maybe we feel hurt, let's say. Okay. Um, and we're moving through the, the process uh, of being with it, and then letting go, and then replacing some of what we've released. We're looking for resources to help us with this negative material. Uh, and the resources being some kind of, quote-unquote, positive experience, uh, either available right in the moment or something we create, maybe by taking action of some kind, like disengaging. Uh, one of the things I really learned of my own family gatherings and my parents' visits was um, nothing over 48 hours. You know, for example. So, okay. Almost any kind of positive experience will tend to be soothing and healing and easing, and it will help us kind of come to a softer landing. That's generally true. On the other hand, and this notion I've really developed in my book, Hardwiring Happiness and Resilient, I think we have these three major needs, and resources often have the most impact when they're matched to the need. So if you're anxious, feeling grateful doesn't really help. Because it doesn't address safety. That's where things like feeling strong inside and capable of dealing with threats or determined or feeling protected or relaxing or noticing you're all right right now or accessing a core of inner peace no matter what else is happening, that addresses safety. Same with uh, issues of satisfaction. If you're frustrated about trying to succeed at something and being thwarted by other people, uh, you can know that you've got money and food and your fundamental biological safety is not being threatened, but it doesn't address that issue of discrimination or obstruction or just impediments to attaining your goals. There you need resources like gratitude, gladness, a plan, um, and support from others to accomplish your goals and so forth. So it's helpful to actually think to yourself, what is the need that's really challenged here Often things are amalgams of needs, but often there's one that really pops out. And then zero in on, okay, what are the major resources that are really matched to it? And I've developed this a lot in the book, Hardwiring Happiness. Again, you don't have to buy it. There are these really cool charts in it where I have all these like matched resource experiences to particular issues. And it, it, it's like they say, close is good enough in hand grenades and horseshoes. You know, in a sense. So, sorry about the hand grenades part. A famous rock climb is called hand grenades and horseshoes. But anyway, uh, I have a background in rock climbing. Um, so it's okay to be close, but the closer you get, the more on the bullseye, I think, the more impact it has, including bringing in resource experiences that are matched to the youngest layers of the tip of the root of this issue inside you. And then that often has the most impact. Okay. All right. I'm going to do a little more, but let's talk about wholeness and lateral mode and other good things. Nothing wrong with what you brought up. It's great. I'm just kind of nudging us in this direction, too. Or in anything, anything you want to talk about. Maybe from this quadrant or this quadrant. No, 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 not, nothing wrong over there on the left wing. I kind of relate, but how about over here? I'll have you right there. This might be a little nitty-gritty, but... When we were, uh, we did the first exercise, the steadying the mind, I really suck at that. (laughs) And my mind wanders a lot. One of the reasons I'm here, you know, how long is five minutes? 
is it four minutes now? You know, it's a little hot. But I noticed that the, um, the things you gave us to think about in studying helped me enormously continually bring my mind back. Yeah. So the steadying, you know, I was still imperfect, right? Yeah. I wasn't able to stay present, but, but I was steadily able to return. That's great. It really was great. Yeah. I didn't feel like a complete failure in doing it. Well, that's really great. Yeah. And um, to build on that, it might help uh, to, to listen to guided practices uh, who, then just write, who then say something. My, my wife listens to Tara Brock, for example, because it would be creepy to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> she listens to me enough already. So, and Tara has these guided practices, and, and it's, they're timed really perfectly just as my wife's mind starts to go away, and she's not a strong meditator. She'd be the first to say, Tara says the next thing and brings it back. So that's kind of nice. Over time, we become more and more independent and able to do it on our own. That's fantastic. And um, I find what's really interesting is to explore a couple of very simple questions that are really close to our experience. There's nothing complicated about them. One is, when I'm actually feeling some basic well-being already, which probably you are, why would my mind jump elsewhere? Oh, really interesting. Yeah. Another one is, especially when I'm centered in basic well-being, can I let myself do no work at all? I'm not trying to accomplish anything. Like I am such a doaholic. I'm not a doer. I'm trained as a doer. Um, to really feel like I don't have to do any work at all. That's almost shocking. It's almost like a taboo. There you are sitting. You don't have to do any work. You can get up and do work later. But right now, I don't have to do any work. To just explore both of those. Like in well-being, I don't have to strive or seek for anything else. I'm already feeling pretty good. And right now, I don't have to get any jobs done. No tasks. That's really neat. Okay. Maybe one more person from the middle flank. Two more. Okay, you two. First you, then you. Okay, first you. Great. Linda, there you go. Right there. So I have a lot of skills and knowledge, um, but there's this fundamental fear, um, shame from early sexual violation. Do you have anything to say that might be a balm for that? Well, first, just feel the weight of it, you know. Yeah. My experience, not having had experiences like that, uh, my experience of others, though, who have, and you've talked about it, one thing that, of course, can really be helpful is just repeated experiences of what we did briefly there, of just feeling the weight of it with compassion for oneself. Um, Again and again and again and again and again. I think that people report as very helpful over time. I bet you know that. I'm just going to remind us all of that. A second thing is that um, I think it can be helpful in anything to identify what was it that had the most meaning to me in all this or impact. And it might not be so obvious. 
or so stereotypical. And I'll um, say I had a, I had a client uh, who had been really, really mistreated. And she, as many people do, came to the feeling that she was stained herself. And for her, she knew rationally that it's they who are bad, but she felt bad herself. And um, she actually did practices of standing in mountain streams that really meant a lot to her and experiencing again and again of being washed clean. And it wasn't so much her, but I've known others who've been really mistreated, who developed the bone, who started conceptually, but it became increasingly bone deep, inside out, bottom up. The deep knowing of, of being fundamentally stainless themselves. Fundamentally pure, fundamentally good, fundamentally blameless themselves. Um, and that was a real healing directed at the partic- a particular aspect that kept the trauma locked in place. It was, a, it was like breaking that link in the chain. What are the links in the chain that bind us still and make us unfree in a way? Uh, so that, that's something. Um, and uh, I think most children, including me, you know, face a fateful choice. Something is wrong with me or something is wrong with them. And most kids make the understandable but wrong choice of concluding something's wrong with me. But in fact, really, it kind of goes to this comment over here about a sister. Something's wrong with them. It's not me. I'm a bit, you know, I, it's happening to me, but nothing's wrong with me. And to really, really internalize more and more deeply, uh, you know, the felt sense of basic goodness, basic intactness, and recognizing that that which is in our core is inherently pure and untouchable. It was never touched by what happened. It was never touched, really. It was never stained, never defiled, never touched, never broken. And uh, to, to repeatedly internalize that experience of that, so more and more we just kind of live in the knowing, uh, I think that's, that's, that's something people really talk about. Yeah. And then one, one, then you, you might want to think about, and there are other things that show up around that, around trauma, especially early trauma, a sense of powerlessness, which goes to safety. And so it's like a try, it's, it's, it's a combination of a wound in relationship, but also it's a violation of safety when we're immobilized, we, we don't have agency. So looking for experiences of agency that are also, that, that are matched to those early feelings of helplessness it can be really useful. Uh, efficacy, like you can make something happen, like like you've exercised agency in letting me know about some things you're doing. Reaching for the salt shaker, keep it really simple, uh, which is the opposite of, agency is the opposite of learned helplessness. We feel more and more like a, uh, a hammer, not a nail, a cue ball, not the eight ball. Um, and there's the truth, of course, that we are 
at the effect of so many things, and yet we can also experience being a chooser, being a director, being a will, one who wills. So that would be another thing that could be matched to that early material. Yeah. What is yeah. your name? Thanks. Yeah. What is your name? Hmm? Oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to say a few things to you. Um, uh, I a- believe... Actually, in this setting, we discourage what's called oh, really? crosstalk. Okay. Yeah. Feel free if you want later to connect. Okay. It's really sure. okay. And it just, the closer we all come to our own experience mm-hmm. in the moment, the, the more, you, you know, generally useful it is in this setting. Okay. So it, in that... ask my question. Yeah, in that spirit then, yeah. Um, when you uh, were talking about the three animals... Yeah, the, the lizard, the mouse, mouse, and the monkey, the monkey? metaphorically. What, yeah. What were those parts of the brain, and, and what was yeah. it uh, representing? Sure. Briefly, it's a little goofy model, but it's... Oh, but I liked it. Yeah, it's memorable. <laughs> and it's good with kids, too. Yes. Uh-huh. So this has to do with what's called the triune brain model. It's kind of a simple model. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a simplification, but it's basically true. We have the brain stem, which is most associated with the reptilian stage of evolution, which also includes, you know, basically the insect stage of evolution. It's really cool to imagine what are the experiences of beetles or spiders, you know? Like, what in the world are they experiencing? Uh, Mosquitoes, right? So reptilian brain, some inner lizard. Lizard is the lizard? Yep. And then we have the subcortex, mainly associated with the mammalian stage of evolution, thus the mouse. And then we have the primate human neocortex, associated mainly with, um, so we have the primate monkey. And the management of our needs involves the brain as a whole, but it's heavily shaped by what has evolved in these three areas. So I think of the reptilian brainstem as very involved with managing safety. Mammalian subcortex, very involved with managing reward, the pursuit of reward, including sustained pursuit. That's the mouse? Yep, that's the mouse. So thus, cheese. And uh, then we have the monkey, very relational. So thus, again and again and again, it's a really helpful little thing to remember as you move through your day, look for those opportunities to pet the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey. Okay? All right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do it too. And it's a really nice meditation as you get out of bed to just take a moment, you know, peace, contentment, love. You're kind of centered then because you're feeling already full in terms of those three needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Peace, contentment, love. From which... I may need to tell you to get off my lawn or to not come to my party because you can't keep your mouth shut or you start drinking at 12 o'clock and, you know, maybe you're one of those people who never drinks before noon but gets up at 11 in the morning. You know, so <laughs> I have some experience with people like that. Anyway, okay, anyway, okay, good. Great, all right. Nowness, nowness. It's now time for nowness, all right? You okay? Boom, nowness. So... What is really characteristic, a lot of what the teachers, great teachers say, Eckhart Tolle, other people, be here now, in the now. Why is now so useful? So some examples of this. First, Suzuki Roshi. 
wonderful quotation. If you take what these people say seriously and kind of unpack their words, it's, it's mind-blowing, actually. Enlightenment is to forget this moment and grow into the next. Continuously. Wow. That's really quite profound. Here we have the Dhammapada. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the farthest shore of existence. That's a reference to the unconditioned, an aspect of the possible transcendental, the farther shore. So if you take the Buddha here at his word, wow, letting go of the future, letting go of the past, and even letting go of the present as it appears, moves one out into the transcendental. Wow. Into the unconditioned. With mind wholly liberated in this way, you shall come no more to birth and death. Another reference to abiding in timelessness. The body will die eventually, but if you will, the you, the, in the broadest sense that the Buddha is referring to there, um, has moved beyond time and rested in timelessness through being in the present moment. Wow. It's pretty remarkable to feel the weight of that, isn't it? So why would that work? Why is now important? Now is actually the great mystery. It's under our noses continuously. It's infinitely thin temporally, right? Because now is infinitely thin in terms of time and yet it contains everything it contains all the causes of the past making the next moment of the future it's really neat especially as the mind quiets to imagine sort of like super slow motion mindfulness in which uh, the tenths of the second tick away thousandths even of a second tick away a thought, a sensation, a desire, a reaction kind of bubbles up into awareness over a few tenths of a second, stabilizes for maybe a few seconds, and then disperses and passes away. So it's really quite wild to imagine coming closer and closer experientially to the emergent edge of now, even as it continually passes away. This brings us into a deep consideration of impermanence or transience. Certainly the impermanence, the transience of our experiences. And it can be a little alarming uh, to become more aware of the endings of things, the endless endings of any moment of experience. It can be kind of frightening. And people talk about in meditation, getting to a place where you're so aware of things ending that it can be terrifying even. It feels like you're truly groundless. And it can also take you to a sense of meaninglessness and despair. So it's traditionally recommended, and I want to name it now, is really important, to be aware of the other side of the truth, which is the endless arisings. There are the endless leavings, the endless passing aways, but in the moment, there's the endless arisings. So more and more, you literally, at least for me, this is kind of a weird metaphor. Um, it's like, 
hitting the elevator button on the 40th floor, the elevator doors open, and you step out, and whew, there's no floor. That's the groundlessness of the, of the endings of everything. And yet, simultaneously, you're, you're endlessly also buoyed by the arisings of the next thing. So it's okay. You see what I'm talking about? So classically, even in meditation, you can focus on an awareness of how things are changing and, and disappearing, like the sensations of breathing are, are altering continuously, or um, any other aspect of your experience, it's, it's going away. It's, it's not here anymore as what it was. And also, you can be very aware of arising, of the next uh, element of experience, the next tenth second or half second of experience, as it were, coming into consciousness. Both are, are really important to pay attention to. So, I want to talk now about the present moment of the brain. Attention has three elements in it neurologically. Three neural networks support attention. So, imagine that something happened. And if you rewind that experience of what happened after I clapped my hands, or you can do this in general, in the first tenth of a second or so, uh, the brain has not yet become able to process it consciously. Certainly the first twentieth of a second. We're always probably about a twentieth to a tenth of a second behind what's actually the emergent end of objective reality. Okay, but we're getting pretty close. In the first half second or so, the first quarter second or so, these networks in the brain uh, respond to a new stimulus by being alerted to it. Something has happened. Don't know what it is, don't know where it is, don't know what it means, don't know what to do about it. Something has happened. Alerting. That's the first of the three uh, functions of attention. And, that, and they happen in order, basically. In the next quarter second or third or half second or so, there is what's called orienting. And our different neural networks involved with attention orient to the location of what happened. In some ways, this is easier to understand if you think about how a bird or a cat or a squirrel reacts to things. And, you know, if, if something happens, there, there's an initial recognition that something has happened, and then on the heels of that is an orienting to where it is. Is it far away? Is it close? If it's close, it's especially potentially threatening or an opportunity. Um, is it here or there, up or down? Much predation in the wild involves ambush predators attacking from behind. So if it's behind me... That's really important to recognize quickly in the wild. And then on the heels of alerting and orienting comes what could be called evaluating, where there's a sense of the relevance of what it is. Is it friend or foe? Is it a snake or a stick or a vine on the forest trail? So you see that sequence, alerting, orienting, uh, evaluating. And then on the heels of that, there's a kind of figuring out what to do about it. When your mind is really quiet, you can watch continuously this process, especially when there's a new sound 
or an event that occurs, or even a sensation in the body, or a thought bubbling up. You know, we're alerted, this idea, this thought is bubbled up, this reaction, let's say, to our friend or sister or whatnot, and then on the heels of that, there's a kind of zeroing in on it, and then there's an evaluation of what it means, evaluating, and then on the heels of that is more sophisticated processing about what to do about it. Alerting, orienting, evaluating. So, if we are interested in coming into the present moment, it behooves us to train the alerting aspects of attention. Because that's what we use at the front edge of consciousness to receive the next moment continuously. And you can see with kind of reverse engineering here, many traditional forms of meditation, such as just sitting practices, like in Zen, where you're just just sitting, shikantaza, um, continually, as Suzuki Roshi said a moment ago, um, you know, letting go letting go, letting go, it really brings you right into the front end of experience in which you're being alerted to things. And as we train in alerting, we're more able to stay in the present moment of experience. It's also true. How many of you know what are called the five aggregates in Buddhism? How many of you don't know the five aggregates? Okay, yeah, yeah. So the Buddha sorted our experience in these five piles this is kind of useful for self-awareness. He said there are five aggregates or piles. You could sort experience into these five groups. The first group is called form, in which there's the, the most immediate um, sensation or recognition of something happening. Sounds like alerting, right? And then the second aggregate is called the hedonic tone or the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I myself think there's a fourth hedonic tone, a sense of things as relational, that's evolving in humans as in particular, that we can become more and more mindful of and is related to our third need for connection. But you don't have to buy that if you don't want to, and you can just keep it simple. You know, pain, unpleasant, pleasure, pleasant, and neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That's the hedonic tone of experience. That's the second aggregate. Third aggregate is called perception. It's a categorizing or labeling what is it? And what does it uh, mean in terms of memory? What, what group does it belong to? What's its category? Uh, and then the fourth aggregate is kind of everything else in, in, in the mind, thoughts, feelings, intentions, plans, our enneagram type, you know, our Myers-Briggs pattern, uh, you know, our memories. And then you have the fifth aggregate, which is awareness. Okay? So we have these five elements. Here's the thing. Sequentially, we start with form. Then typically, there's a combination of perception and the hedonic tone. What is it and how does it feel? That's basically related to orienting and evaluating aspects of attention. And then on the heels of that come what are called the volitional formations. That's the fourth group, the formations. All the other contents of mind. All of it occurring in the ongoing field of awareness. Where does suffering live? Yeah, well, actually, hedonic tone is just unpleasant. But we're not suffering yet. Suffering is in the formations, the volitional formations. 
the more that we can come close to the front edge of experience, rested in the sense of things as form, just whatever they are, not even knowing what category they belong to, and letting uh, the hedonic tone just be what it is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, whatever, and not even needing to label things with perception, the more that we're right at the front edge, we are, it's kind of like in the, you break through the sound barrier. You're it's suddenly quiet. Suffering is continually behind you. Does that make kind of sense? The more, the closer we come to the front edge of now, the more we rest in alerting, the more we're in that aspect of consciousness, which is the Buddha called form, just a sense of things happening continuously without even particularly getting preoccupied with whether they're unpleasant or pleasant or what they are, or what they mean. The more and more we can do that, the less and less suffering there is. To function, often we need to engage the formations, we need to categorize, we need to plan, we need to do things. And yet even there, in that moment of planning and problem solving, whoop, we can be right at the front edge of now with regard to it, which disengages us increasingly from suffering in a categorical, sweeping way. This becomes more real as you practice it. But, okay? Okay. Good. So you want to try this? Good. I'm going to talk in a minute about the allocentric networks that are involved with uh, feeling like you're one with everything. But it's also true that these alerting systems in the brain which are more ancient than orienting and evaluating networks of attention, the alerting networks of attention entwine with what I'll get to soon, probably after a break, the so-called allocentric networks of the brain that help us feel one with everything. So as we train in alerting, just staying right here, right at the front edge, right at the front edge, uh, we become more able neurologically to feel connected with everything. Okay? Let's try it. You okay so far? Yeah. All right. So letting go. We're going to do a meditation here. I want to set it up. Ajahn Chah again. Remember I said, uh, he said, you know, if you want to meditate, keep it simple. Uh, aware and letting go. Aware and letting go. I love this quote. It says, if you let go a little, you'll have a lot. You'll have a little piece If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll be completely peaceful. I have seen this translated also as happy, the word for peace, happy. So if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll be completely happy. You may have to deal with an illness. You may have, uh, your heart might be heavy when the last months of my dad's life, two things were really true. It felt like my heart was really heavy in a vast field of well-being. And I felt really grateful for that. Um, So, letting go. And so now we're going to do this as a meditation. And I'm going to kind of walk you through this. I think we're good on time. Okay, we'll do this and we'll take a break. All right? Here we go. So... Help yourself, first of all, establish, drawing on some of what we've done so far, a sense of basic all rightness. 
like coming into a posture that's comfortable also helps you remain alert. You might be aware of a well-being that's already here, underlying well-being. Moving through our three needs from the bottom up, starting with a little bit of lizard petting, helping yourself let go of unnecessary anxiety, recognizing some of your own strength, relaxing, Feeling as safe as you reasonably can. anything, not being at war with anything out in the world or inside yourself, knowing you can deal with threats while remaining calm and strong in your core. Opening to a growing sense of ease, calm, letting go of uneasiness, guardedness. Also, feeding the mouse as it were, helping yourself feel satisfied enough in this moment 
so that there's no need for drivenness of any kind or seeking or problem solving. It might help to be aware of some things you feel grateful about, some things you're glad about, happy about. Opening to a growing sense of contentment. Helping yourself know that you can trust yourself to live into the next moment and take care of things and enjoy life so that now and now you can help yourself feel that you've already arrived. Already arrived now. So that any striving or seeking or chasing can fall away. Nothing lacking, already full. And we can also help ourselves stay in the present by, as I say, hugging the monkey, opening to some warm-heartedness, being aware of your own caringness, your own goodness toward others, your friendliness and warmth. Also, without getting complicated, being aware of being loved or cared about or befriended yourself. Focusing not on the story, but the experience. 
than old feelings of hurt or resentment that might be disturbing you can fall away. Feeling love flowing in and flowing out. And as you feel increasingly full, increasingly enough already, letting yourself really abide in the present moment. No need to think about it. As soon as you think about it, you're out of it. Seeing what it's like to remain alert to sounds, sensations, thoughts as they appear, and letting them go instantly, continually. As you remain alert in the present, you can recognize from time to time the endless whoosh of the arising fountain of experience continually into awareness.
experiences keep happening. See if you can stay in the present moment alert to what's happening, staying with the sensations, the immediacy of the moment, while focusing on letting go as you exhale. No need to understand anything or control anything. Simply present, alert at the front edge of now.
We'll take a few more minutes with this, and I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of things. First, as you stay in the present, it might be real for you, or you might have an experience or an insight that just feels freeing, that because things are changing so rapidly, you can't possibly hold on to them. So there's no point in trying. And it can feel perhaps like a relief or something even joyful to realize it's hopeless to hold on to any aspect of experience. So you don't need to. And second, also, only if it's real for you, you might find the possibility of a kind of delight or wild joy available right in the now. Continually changing under our feet, endlessly renewed.
remaining alert in the present. Now, let's take our break. Now, and come back, please, at uh, 3.30. Okay, slightly short. Uh, And it'll be now, 3.30, when you come back. Okay? Okay, good. See you soon. Now.
Yeah, I love him. Yeah. And I, you know, I keep coming, and so each time I'm getting a little more. Okay, this is someone's copy of Buddha's brain. 
Oh, okay, so I'll just return it. That's great. The professor's name is Cohen about the monkey in the tree, you know, the bananas and how pleasure uh, or happiness or positive emotion helps keep the gate closed to the neural substrates of working memory. Uh, and I'm adapting from his work, and it's summarized here in Buddha's brain. So if you're looking for that, he, at least then, was at Princeton. These... Uh, Top-tier academics sometimes move around. All right. Kind of like my wiring here. We're back? We're okay? All right. Any question or comment about nowness? What? Cohen. Can I have the last 20 seconds of my life back? No, I'm just kidding you, man. I'm just kidding you. No. Cohen. Cohen is his name. That's right. That's it was a gift. That's good. I'll take it. Okay. Anything about now? Yes, please. In the back there, the microphone behind you. Great. Oh, sorry. Hi. Um, as you've been talking about the factors of steadiness and the um, three basic needs, so taking it back a little bit, um, I've been wondering how for those of us that work with clients where safety is more or less a privilege, um, if that basic need is not met, when people's safety is in jeopardy in a very real day, um, a very real way on a day-to-day basis, how would you start to incorporate these practices or how would you apply these when something like basic safety isn't met? Yeah, thank you. So, first as a frame, if we just say as a loose framework, three major needs, safety, satisfaction, connection. If we want to help people have experiences of those needs met, there are different places we can intervene. In my own mind, uh, I'm kind of like a model maker. Uh, I think of intervening in the world, the body, and the mind. So if you think of um, those needs, we can address safety, let's say, by fixing the criminal justice system or establishing universal health care or uh, reducing wealth inequality or, or you know, reducing um, abusive partnering and parenting. Right? We can do a lot of things in that way. And that's a really, really, really important domain of intervention, the world. We can also intervene in the body for safety in terms of improving physical health uh, and also maybe helping people uh, be more abled in terms of mobility or having um, uh, their body be more able to function in different settings. That's, and also we can increase resources in the mind, so world, body, mind. They all work together, first of all. And uh, as a pragmatic person who has also certainly had tons of privilege in my life, and uh, I appreciate the way that Tanisi Coates described privilege as not having to take something into account. It's not the entirety, but it's a really nice thumbnail. Uh, I, I don't have to take a lot into account that a lot of other people do every day. So that said, if you think about it, the, the more that the world is not helping you with your need for safety or satisfaction or connection, and in fact, let's say the more that the world is threatening you or attacking you, the more important it is to build resources up in the mind. So for me, it's, it's very pragmatic. 
And it's, and it's important not to frame this as either or and to do what I really appreciate you doing here, which is what I should have done from the get-go, is make this more explicit, you know, the framework in which I'm speaking. Because um, if, if a person has, has a, belongs to a group of people or, the, or for other reasons, just individually, they've been left out of the discourse or the cultural model if you've been left out, to have the reality of your life left out yet again by someone in my position is problematic. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying here. So that said, so then if we focus on what I do as a, I'm a therapist, psychologist, so I tend to focus on interventions in the mind, and particularly as they're supported by underlying, enabling, facilitating conditions in the brain. So what do you do if um, you're being uh, attacked continuously externally or you live in very unsafe environment? A war zone, a family that's like a war zone, um, just qualities you have lead others to attack you, prejudice, discrimination, they hit you, things like that. Um, I myself turn to those who haven't, who, who, who have more direct experience of that, and what do they say? So I think of um, the African-American preacher, Howard Thurman, who talks about the cultivation of the capacity to look out upon the world with quiet eyes. You know, the development of a kind of stability of clarity and in oneself that sees what's disturbing out there. That is something that I think helps people feel more that they have a core of being. You may have my body, but you never get my mind. You never get the core of me. Uh, you may have the city hall or other halls of power, but you never get my mind. Um, and uh, I think that's a really important resource that people can develop. The kind of internal temple or sanctity of... I'm entitled to my own view of things. I see what I see, and I claim that knowing for myself. And that's the primary thing, routinely, that's attacked by oppressive systems in families or in countries, the capacity to discern facts and to discern the truth and to trust what you see with your own eyes. But reclaim that. Another thing I want to add here, and, and I'll just kind of do this briefly and then keep going into allness, uh, the second thing is to recognize your own grittiness, the fact that you can endure, you're still here. Uh, enduring is a really fundamental aspect of strength that can be underappreciated. Um, enduring, or knowing what it feels like to be determined and gritty. That's a major factor in the mind of, of feeling safer because the more that we feel determined and tough and gritty, stubborn, we moxie, you know. Talk to the hand. You know, and to find that middle place where we can be fiery and fierce without moving into hatred and going to war and having enemy images, you know, invade our mind and colonize it. Um, that too is, I think, a major available resource for people who are living in really tough conditions. And then 
Last, I'll just add, and this is not a complete list, but these three I think are pretty good headlines. You know, uh, reserving the right to know what you know, see what you see, think what you think, plan what you plan. Second, um, a uh, feeling of your own moxie, your own pluck and grit. Third, uh, a primal source of safety is uh, feeling um, loved, feeling included, feeling befriended, feeling uh, camaraderie, fellowship with others, including uh, from your own warm heart. No matter, even if it's limited what's coming in, a major source of this primary sense of connectedness, which is a resource for safety, comes from inside ourselves. Even if, you know, you're not loving, I can be loving. And in a funny kind of way, as, I, as we tap into that felt sense of connection, that tends to calm the sense of threat and helps us feel more resourced and able to deal with things. So those are just my three cents. I named three things. I would also, of course, ask other people, people who live in conditions I, I haven't had to, uh, what they draw upon to help themselves uh, Establish calm strength. I think of it as calm capability, calm strength in the core of being that may feel fear because they're scary or it's scary. It doesn't mean we don't feel fear uh, or might feel anger flowing through without being hijacked by it, using it, you know, or other forms of dealing with threats. You know, people who deal with that stuff all day long often have more to say than I probably do right here. Okay. I should keep going. I better keep going. Tell you what, I'll happily talk with you later. That was my two cents on that one, or three cents. Let's keep going now, okay? So I want to talk now about the remaining two subjects, uh, and we'll end at 4.30. All right. I'll say one last thing, no. (laughs) I want to frame this really as, this is just kind of what I've seen myself in a life of practice. And while I haven't been traumatized, um, I've had really hard things happen in my life that have been very painful that I've had to deal with. And I think that's true of most people. We have different forms. And I'm not... Make, I felt I, I had a C minus childhood. You know, I wouldn't call it a D or an F, and I want to be clear, it's not a D or an F. Uh, for me, part of what motivates me personally is a sense of resourcefulness. No matter how much it sucks, I am with Captain Kirk in the Star Trek movies, I reject the no-win scenario. No matter how much it sucks, there's always something we can do if only to ride out the storm. And very often, the primary domain in which we have agency, there's something we can do, is inside our own heart, inside our own mind, our own being. We can't change the environment around us. (laughs) We're surrounded by terminators, and they keep coming at us, right? But what we can do is develop inside ourselves. And uh, I, you know, really believe in that. And uh, it's not either or. In fact, as we grow resources inside, we're more able to speak truth to power. We're more able to sustain action in the world. And for me, it really boils down to what can you do? Where can you look? And sometimes you can't do anything inside your mind, but you sure can change your circumstances. 
You can leave the party. You can hang up the phone. You can do something different. You can call a doctor. You can take some medicine. You can stop doing something that's hard for your body. But it's, for me, it's about opportunity. Where can you look? Where do you have a chance to help things get better? And very often, in my view, my observation, people overlook the power of cultivation inside their own mind. Um, they're willing to make sustained efforts to intervene in the world around them, but they don't make sustained efforts to intervene inside their own mind. And yet that's where they have more control and influence. And that's where they take the results with them wherever they go. Yeah. Okay? So. All right. Allness. So. We have inside us a nat- two major ways of perceiving reality or Framing our experience of reality. One major way is the most ancient. And a fancy term for it is allocentric, a sense of things as a whole. So in this way of literally perceiving a room visually or reflecting on or framing our life, The original, kind of most ancient neural networks support a way of viewing the world as a kind of impersonal whole in which no part is privileged and no perspective is privileged. There's a sense of the world as it is, as what it is, independent of my own view. We take it as a whole. It's kind of impersonal. It's, it is just what it is. And uh, you can do a little experiment now. If you let your gaze come close to you, you bring it down. It's kind of see what that's like. And then as your gaze moves out toward the horizon and beyond, you might notice that you have more and more of a sense of things as a whole, impersonally, Kind of the big picture. And this material that I'm going to do right now with you, having to do with these two ways of framing experience, draws on the work of the neurologist James Austin, who has written a series of books. Happily, they've gotten thinner. Um, And he's a Zen practitioner, and he asks the question, why do so many uh, known experiences of Satori or Kensho, of just sudden awakening, one with everything. Why do so many of them happen in nature involving surprise with the gaze outward or upward? Why? Why is that? Why is that? So he's developed a plausible notion of that, which I've adapted for this material. So one way of experiencing life or the moment, perceiving it, is allocentric. A second is egocentric, it's called. And they're not good or bad. They're just two different ways of perceiving. In the more egocentric mode, which is very much characterized visually when we bring our gaze close, then we are perceiving things in reference to ourselves, not as they are impersonally. 
What's it got to do with me? Why should I care? Egocentric, self-referential. Egocentric mode emerges a lot when we've got to manage some kind of issue. When we have to manage a threat to safety or a challenge to satisfaction or a disruption of connection. That's more egocentric. So it tends to be more involved with doing and goal-directedness and a sense even of craving. There also tends to be more of a sense of I, more of a sense of self. When we're in the allocentric mode, I went back a slide, um, it tends to be more beingness-oriented. There's you know, not a problem, in the moment at least. We're already full. Does this sound familiar? There's all, right, all rightness already. So you can see the ways in which some of the material I've been developing have been heading in this direction. That as to the extent, understandably, we and other animals, uh, when we feel that our needs are being challenged and uh, more than we can manage in the moment, that tends to promote an egocentric perspective. All right? So how can we rest increasingly at will in the allocentric perspective or framework and even more and more broadly kind of increasingly feel interdependently connected with everything so that the sense of separation between self and world, between me and you, starts blurring and feels less tense and contracted. I'm really trying to explore here the underlying neural basis for oneness experiences, that people, including dramatic oneness experiences that people report. So there is a natural alternation, including in the visual field, between the egocentric and allocentric perspective. And you can actually watch this, even as you sit here, when you start being aware of this, that there's this almost like automatic rhythm where visually your awareness kind of goes out to the big picture, then comes back to, okay, what's this got to do with me? What should I do about it? Am I okay? What's going on now? Big picture, impersonally. You know, this, everything is a whole in which my body is just one element in a larger whole. All right, coming back to me, egocentric. What, what should I do? What's this got to do with me? You can observe this alternation. As one increases, the other decreases. And when we're alerted by something, including something surprising, there's initially, naturally, a movement into the allocentric perspective. Just something has happened. Something has happened. As a whole, in the whole, in the total gestalt, in the whole environment, something has happened. And then on the heels of that sense of being alerted to something has happened, we tend to move into an egocentric, as it were, response to it as we figure out where is it, what does it mean, the second and third aspects of the alerting of the attentional system, and then forming a more sustained plan, what am I going to do about it? So you can see the ways in which training in alerting, training in being right at the front edge of now, receiving the moment as it disappears immediately, is a way to support 
uh, allocentrism, a sense of things as a whole, that in which we have a kind of relaxed sense of connection with everything. There are other ways to support allocentrism. We've covered a lot of them. And by the way, this is something you can practice in an ongoing way, not just trying to make yourself accident prone to Satori uh, or Kensho. Um, There are a couple of lovely Tibetan sayings, I think lovely. One is gradual cultivation, sudden awakening. Gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. It's a dynamic spiraling process that allows for uh, cultivation and then a breakthrough and then kind of backfilling around the breakthrough to establish it and stabilize it. And then that's the platform for the next sudden awakening. They also have a saying, moments of awakening, many times a day. I think it's also legitimate to call out moments of nowness, moments of mind as a whole, moments of recognizing you're a local ripple in a vast sea of causes. You know. Um, and then they pass, just a moment. But the moments become more frequent and they have more and more impact over time. Okay, so factors of allocentrism, of oneness, uh, you're okay already. You're, you're full. You don't need to divide yourself from the world. You recognize that the body ends here and the world starts there. You're... Uh, you, you, your, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Or, you know, there's a fundamental distinction there. And yet, as we feel more full, we feel less at war with others or reality. And we feel less um, divided from the world. And we feel less divided inside ourselves as we feel more and more full. Also, wholeness, which we did earlier, draws us into an inclusive awareness of our body and then other aspects of experience, sounds and sights and thoughts, going all the way out to awareness itself. That too, naturally, supports the sense of the whole. Practicing wholeness, including accepting all of ourselves. That's another major aspect of wholeness I could have talked about more. Self-acceptance, including everything. Opening all the doors inside the mansion of the mind. Even though some of them have pain in there, some of them have some smelly stuff probably, if your mansion is like mine. And still, it's all me. It's all you. It's all oneself. That's wholeness. Nowness, the more we come into the now, we train in the alerting networks of the brain, which are, as I said, ancient, more ancient than the orienting and evaluating networks. They entwine with the more ancient allocentric uh, processing streams. So nowness. Also nowness brings us into an openness as we receive, receiving nowness, so we're open to reality. We're not divided from it. Also tranquility. Interestingly, these the shift, especially visually, but also more generally in terms of our perceptions, between the allocentric frame and then the egocentric frame, that shift back and forth, is regulated by switches in the thalamus, or technically the thalami. There are two of them in the brain. And those little switches, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, are regulated by a neurotransmitter modulator system, GABA, which is very involved with experiences of tranquility. 
So it's plausible. No one's ever done a study on this to my knowledge. But it's plausible that one of the ways in which tranquility training, one of the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment in Buddhism, so tranquility is pretty darn valued there, one of the ways in which tranquility training might make us more prone for oneness experiences or increasingly stable sense of oneness in everyday life is through increasing activity of these of GABA, GABA-based uh, neural processing, which flipped the switch more to allocentrism. And then last, conceptually, recognizing interconnectedness through living more in nature or doing nature bathing, whatever it's called, forest bathing, there we are, um, feeling more and more like, or conceptually you realize more and more, oh, whatever's happening right here is caused by so many other things. My moment of experience is like a little tiny node or net, in node or not, rather, in a vast web of causes. And as that web ripples or jiggles, the local expression of all that is right here. Or much as a single swell in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is the result of all the causes in the sea, the movement of the tides, the sun, the gravitational effects of the, uh, I mean the moon, the tides of the moon, also even gravitational effects of the sun. Uh, whoa, you know, my little local wave is a local patterning that's the result of everything. Understanding that initially and then having more and more of a sense of that is also a factor of allness. So James Austin's theory, summary, briefly, is that as we train in these factors, and I've added some to what he's said, as we train in these factors, that rhythm of allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, we start strengthening spikes of allocentrism. Egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, and then something happens, a surprise. The bottom falls out of the bucket. The frog croaks. We see the, more, the evening star, Venus, in the distance, and kaboom, we're stuck in allocentrism. One with everything. That's his cool theory. And then after a while, it kind of fades, it kind of fades, it kind of fades. You come back, um, and here here we are. So, uh, I have found it to be, I haven't recently experienced any kind of Kensho or Satori thing. On the other hand, I have found that training in this gradual cultivation of allocentrism really is effective. And you can increasingly, this kind of, have it be almost your ground of being that whatever's happening locally is part of a vaster whole. It's not so personal. Um, it's, you know, there's a place for managing it to the extent you can, but there's more and more of a beautiful, peaceful sense of connection with everything. So, you want to try a little meditation about this? Okay, so far. Any questions about this? Oh, I'll say one last thing. And again, this, uh, this is pretty deep stuff, I think. So mind as a whole, there is mind as a whole. It's just one whole process. Take it out, 
there is reality as a whole. Allness as a whole. The universe. It's a whole. The Buddha's search in his life was for what is a reliable basis for the ultimate, lasting, profound peace of mind and happiness. How do you find a reliable basis when things are continually changing? So that which is not changing is a more reliable basis. The contents of mind change, but mind as a whole process doesn't change because it's always a mind process as a whole. Whoa. The whole is a more reliable basis for lasting peace of mind and well-being. Oh. You can also get a sense of this that kind of stops your mind. You can get a sense of this when you get that reality, things in reality change. Stars change, weather changes, events occur, but allness as allness abides. Allness as allness is unchanging as allness. And you can get a sense of, ah, if you take refuge in allness as allness, that's a more reliable basis for lasting happiness. And much as in mind as a whole, it's not you, you just feel it. There's not a problem. When you have an intuition of allness as a whole, <laughs> you start laughing. It's like, it's not a problem. This is an invitation that I'm saying to you here. See for yourself over time. It may start conceptually for you. But then increasingly, it becomes something real in your actual experience. So you want to try a little meditation? All right. So let's try this. And then we'll spend the last few minutes, um, I'll talk about the unconditioned, and then we'll finish up. Okay, great. So in this moment, taking a moment to kind of, as we've done before, center. Letting yourself ease. Finding a stability of well-being that enables aversion to fall away, grasping to fall away, and any kind of clinging to others to fall away. Already full, already at ease. with your eyes open visually or with your eyes closed in your imagination, see what it's like to bring your gaze to the horizon 
or, or out in front of you, maybe even higher. And as you do this, getting a sense increasingly of everything. With a sense of your own body, your own person process, as one part, one local aspect of everything. Not to diminish or devalue the part that is your own person process, your own body-mind unfolding over time, your own eddy in the stream of reality. Not devaluing that, but using your gaze or your imagination to support a recognition of a much vaster whole. Other people in this room, larger building, extending out into the whole world. If it gets at all alarming, being aware of all rightness here, as you kind of include more of everywhere. It can help to have ideas which become experiences of recognizing the truth that we are continually receiving from everything and expressing out into everything. Even, let's say, with something as simple as the breath. knowing that you are receiving oxygen released by green growing things. Knowing that you are expressing carbon dioxide taken up by green growing things.
or other ways that work for you of knowing and then feeling that each of us receives from the whole world and expresses out into the world naturally. It can help to be tranquil, not numb, simply tranquil. (coughs) So that you can know and feel what you know, that whatever experience is occurring now and now is the result, the expression of a vast web of causes manifesting locally now. It might help to get a sense of the edges of your body softening or the edges of positions or points of view in your mind softening, the edges blurring, softening.
it might help to be aware of all the little processes in your body that are living you. All the little cellular machines operating. Might help to appreciate how your living is enabled by plants and perhaps animals. Life in general, appearing as you in particular. Life living through you. might have a sense of how extraordinary all this is. All these causes and conditions came together to make you in all the moments of the past and in this moment and in all the moments to come. How marvelous, how amazing. You might have a sense of allness, the totality of the universe and experiences, all of it, allness. Feeling the all rightness in opening into allness.
our living, moment after moment, is a local patterning of allness. Patternings arise and pass away, allness endures. It's okay if this begins as merely conceptual. It's okay. It's okay if there are are just flashes from time to time of this truth. With practice those, we we become more and more rested in a sense of interbeing, interconnection. and more and more amazed and delighted that all these causes and conditions have come together to make our own life moment after moment. By the way, if um, if uh, you're bold and you might want to try something, uh, if you meditate from time to time, you know, a fairly long period, like 40, 45 minutes, although you can do it more briefly, you can move through the steps I've laid out here um, uh, kind of directly. So, you know, establishing a basic steadiness of mind then a sense of fullness, lizard, mouse, and monkey, then wholeness, then coming into the present, then opening out into everything and receiving everything, rippling through you continually. 
it's kind of a wild meditation. And uh, you start losing it, you know, just open your eyes, rub your feet on the floor, or it gets uncomfortable, you know, do these things. But it's a really powerful practice. So, like I said, I wanted to introduce in this day um, some, for me at least, pretty profound material that also uh, opportunistically has some pretty good neural underpinnings for steadiness of mind, wholeness, nowness, and allness. And now I'd like to kind of leave the natural frame behind and spend the last few minutes talking about uh, what the Buddha clearly talked about a lot and was aiming toward that which is beyond ordinary causes and impermanence. The ultimate basis or refuge for a profound and lasting happiness and peace of mind. This material uh, for me is important to engage not dogmatically, so I'm not trying to um, make you think something, but I do want to respect certain, certainly the Buddhist tradition that I sit in and you know my own sense of things, and I think many other people have a sense of things, that there could well be something that's meaningfully distinct from the natural uh, frame of things, which does also include certainly many wild things like quantum mechanics and black holes and spooky action at a distance and this moment of experiencing. So I want to talk about the unconditioned. First, some quotations. A bit of a frame. In my view, clearly there is mind and matter. Clearly we are having experiences. From our experiences, we infer physical stuff, mind and matter. I'm happy if people want to stop there. I have friends and, who are teachers of mine who stop right there. They think, well, maybe there's more, but it's not useful. Fine. That said, it's clear to me that the Buddha talked about something beyond ordinary conditioned phenomena in the natural frame. And that's where we go to the possibility of mystery. So what are some of the things he said about it? My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving. Craving due to conditioned phenomena and um, our conditioning. So he's referring there to something that's distinct from the ordinary process deterministically of experiencing things. Here's a more extended Quote. Uh, the metaphor here when he talks about the world, he's really talking about experience. And he's drawing on the fire rituals, which were very common in his time. He's using that as a metaphor. The entire world of experience is in flames. The entire world is going up in smoke. The entire world is burning, changing. The entire world is vibrating. But that which does not vibrate or burn, which is experienced by the noble ones who are enlightened, not based on birth, but on practice. That which is experienced by the noble ones, where death has no entry, in other words, where things don't change, where they don't fall away, in that my mind delights. That which does not vibrate or burn, which is experienced by the noble ones, where death has no entry, is timeless, in that my mind delights. Here's a slightly more extended quotation. The born, 
In other words, caused by conditions. The born come to be produced. The made, the conditioned, the transient, conjoined with decay and death. A nest of disease, perishable, sprung from nutriment. Nutriment being that which feeds the ongoing processes of craving and clinging. Sprung from nutriment and craving's cord. That is not fit to take delight in. The escape from that, the peaceful, beyond reasoning, everlasting, the not born, the unproduced, the sorrowless state that is void of stain, the cessation of states linked to suffering, the stilling of the conditioned, bliss. So he's referring to something here. What in the world could he be talking about? And how can we, inside the natural frame, with a natural mind and brain, have some kind of intimation uh, or sense of unconditionality? So minimally, that which is transcendental seems to me to necessarily be at a minimum a field of possibility. It's not yet conditioned. That which is conditioned is actual. It is what it is. That which is not yet conditioned is a field of possibility. And we can intuit that which is like transcendental unconditionality by being aware of the field of possibility in our lives and maybe intuiting a a sense of possibility always just prior to emergent actuality. It's kind of weird. You can kind of get a sense. My, of, and for me, it's partly when I think of people who are very far along, seem awakened, like they're engaged in what's actual, what's real. You know, take the pot off the stove, pull the baby or the child back away from onrushing traffic. And yet there's also a sense in them of just freedom. It's like they're kind of, the back of them is grounded in possibility while the front of them is engaged with actuality. And I think we can have ourselves more and more of a sense of that. Possibility. Okay. Or also we can have a sense of timelessness. That which isn't changing. Or we can have a sense of stillness. That which is not moving. So the sense of possibility, the sense of timelessness, and the sense of stillness are doorways into the the potential transcendental. In my view, it's actual. The actual transcendental. Timelessness, possibility, and stillness weighs in. It's also possibly the case, this can get very heady, I'll keep it super short, that as experiments on entangled quantum particles show, it seems necessary for some form of consciousness to be involved for two entangled particles that potentially are this or that to congeal into what they actually are. Consciousness helps them become actual. They move from possible potential to actual. Well, what if Heisenberg, who essentially came up with that whole bit, um, was right everywhere? What if consciousness needs to be woven into the fabric of reality everywhere for quantum potentiality to congeal into actuality 
continually at the emergent edge of now. That would be a way of understanding a second major attribute of the of transcendental, in addition to unconditionality, consciousness of some kind, woven into the underlying fabric of reality. It's a possibility. Some people talk about that. There are other attributes of the transcendental that historically have been called out. Some quality of love, of kindness, of benevolence, maybe bliss, maybe some uh, personhood, some attributes of personhood. But minimally, it seems to me that uh, the transcendental must have the attribute of unconditionality, and that's what the Buddha mainly talked about. So we can practice with that increasingly. And in my view, as we become more and more grounded in wholeness, nowness, and allness, we become more accessible to what could be called timelessness. Uh, We have more and more of a sense of that. And we become more and more able to be lived by that, potentially. If you don't relate to this, it's really okay. And still, it seems clear to me historically, as the Buddha taught, um, he did refer to that which is beyond or distinct from, in some kind of meaningful sense, uh, the ordinary process of conditioned phenomena. To finish with two quotes, and I'll ring the bell and we'll finish here. Uh, from Thomas Merton, Christian monk, as well as a deep Zen practitioner. A little poem. Be still. Listen to the stones of the wall. Be silent. They try to speak your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? Whose silence are you? What is our deepest nature? Our nature endures and is a reliable basis for lasting happiness. What is our deepest, most fundamental nature? Or as the Zen master Hakuin said, References, no. (laughs) Pointing directly to the heart-mind, which is a, he's talking about consciousness, pointing directly to consciousness and its origin points continually. See your own nature and thereby become Buddha. Pointing directly to the heart-mind, as we've tried to do in many ways here, right at the emergent edge of now, right at the origin point. See your own nature and become Buddha. May it be so for you and me and all beings everywhere, always. Thank you very much for your attention. We're done. Thank you. Thanks for hanging in here with hardcore stuff. Be sure to sign out if you want that uh, softcore CEUs you know, for your licensure. I do. Okay, take good care. Remember, this is video, this is audio recorded, and if you want the talks or the meditations, they'll be available quite soon. All right, take care. I just want to say thank you so much. You're welcome. I've been just saying for, you know, 25 years I've devoted Buddhist practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.